0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 48. Subscribe to us and leave us a review in iTunes to turn more using your favorite podcast app.
1: Or visit us at CodingBlocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more.
2: Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks, or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. Joe Zach is
1: back. <laughs> yes, sir and i'm michael outlaw welcome back sir uh thank you good to be back excellent episode by the way really enjoyed it appreciate that it it was uh we missed you (laughs) oh thank you
2: (laughs) all right so sappy stuff out of the way let's get into some podcast (laughs)
0: news awkward moment aside (laughs) let's get into more awkward moments where outlaw tries to read names bro hugs all around all right so you want to do the itunes or the stitcher ones Oh, no, I was really joking. I think that uh because Joe was out, he should have to read a bunch, if not all. although I will uh, say though that uh I think it was uh Russell Hammett commented that uh um maybe people are just making the names more difficult uh <laughs> on purpose, <laughs> yeah. so that you know it's it's more difficult for me
2: hey, hey before we get into reading these, I think the first one should have like a, a soundtrack to it, like take this broken death... <laughs> Oh my God! <laughs> really? That just happened. It did. All right. Hey, so are we recording? We are. So go ahead, Joe. You could you could read these off this time. All right. So I guess I'd now you
0: got to sing it because he's like really up the game there. <laughs> I'm really yeah, gonna have yeah. a hard time next time. I don't know
1: if you guys would like my singing. <laughs> um,
0: what was that?
1: <laughs> it's my that's my metal voice. That's the only way I can sing.
2: All right. What you got? Let's do this thing.
1: Uh, Broken Dev, Simon the U, Runcito, Terrence D, Rich11145, Hardcore Rockstar, BCM Sco, <laughs> Friend of Entropy, Fred Staban, Ibanki7, Islander 201111, uh, I am Quaz, uh, Adam Hennigan, and for Stitcher we've got Snapper109, Brian Place, Vesso7, Zelig880, cube Oh, oh, Joro 550, Philip Lowney, and Rocket Raccoon. That was nicely done, sir. I
0: feel like yeah, there were some, some tough ones in there.
1: Like he's, he's, I made it sound easy, though. <laughs> he did have some time to
0: practice these, though. <laughs> while I was singing. Uh. Yeah. Uh, so, what else we got going on? I think somebody might have gotten in front of a camera while they were missing from the microphone. Yes.
1: Yeah I did. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so I made a, a couple videos um, doing some code war problems. Just kind of wanted to give a shot. Uh, the idea is basically to to do the problems in such a way that's uh, similar to the kind of stuff that might happen in an interview. Or the things you might talk about. So I tried to talk through uh, solving the problem and uh, I've gotten some pretty good feedback so far. So um, you guys check it out and let me know what you think. And uh, we'll have links to that in the show notes at slash episode forty eight.
2: Yep, and also a heads up, too, we don't have it in the show notes, but it will be there here in a second. Uh, you can also go to youtube.com slash blocks and see any videos that we've uploaded. So that's an easy way to see all of the current and future videos that will be there. So definitely check it out and leave Joe a thumbs up on that video. It's pretty excellent. And,
0: and speaking of Joe getting his interview skills ready, um, Peter Nelson... In our Slack channel posted a great link um, that I'm kind of phrasing like how to become an engineer at Google, right? And he had posted a link to a a Reddit article that was just a link to this GitHub page that had the Google interview university and like basically everything you needed to know uh, if you wanted to get in at at Google. And the idea was that... uh, where is that post? The, there was this guy that wanted to, wants to get a job at Google, and so these were his notes of you know what he needed to do uh, to get the job. But then I also found two, which is an incredibly impressive list of things uh, to study. But Google also has a student's guide to the to technical development, and that has a lot of the same information on. It. I thought, oh, well, this is this is. All of this is great information. So we're going to include some links in, in, uh, in the show notes to both of those. But, I mean, it's things like um, knowing the different data structures, knowing trees, sorting, recursion, uh, processes and threads, right? Um, you know, just you know, I, a lot of things that, you know, you may have heard pe- people talk about in class or in the work environment. Maybe we've mentioned it. Um, yeah, just a great resource of information though. Like even if you're not trying to get a job at Google, this was stuff that would be good to know.
2: Yeah. And just a heads up, if Google's looking for these type things, so are the Amazons and Microsofts and the big tech companies of the world. So this is something that would help you out in any
0: type of interview that is super technical. And, and, and the Google, um, link that we'll have up there has uh, you on their page, they have things like, hey, you want to learn cryptography? Here's some online resources for learning cryptography. You want to learn web development. You want to learn Android development. Like depending on what you want to do, they're sending you to a link to something else that can teach you that, right? You want to learn about uh, machine learning? There you go. Here's a link from Stanford University on machine learning. Excellent.
2: Very nice.
1: And I uh, should mention it is a multi-month study plan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's some serious content here.
0: Yeah, I, I think if I remember right, when I read the GitHub post, it was, uh, well, no, I guess it just says multi-month. I thought it was a year-long um, process, but maybe I read that somewhere else, or maybe I just made that up in my mind. But uh, and, and it looks like there's a translation that might be Mandarin or some other uh, character-based uh language that we can't read. But so the Google interview, the Google interview university link is apparently offered in another language as well. Very and this nice. is all self-taught, so no uh CS degree, right? This is this is this guy's study plan to uh become an engineer at Google. That's awesome.
2: So, a heads up, I know I think on the last episode outlaw's tip was, you know, get out there and find out which meetups are coming up. So a couple of ones that we want to bring up here are Atlanta Code Camp is this coming weekend, which this will be helped by them probably, Uh, or actually this won't. This episode won't be. So I hate it. We'll probably tweet this out and maybe put it on our social things, but you can still register for it. It's this Saturday, October fifteenth. So hopefully you'll be there, and if so, maybe we'll run into you. Uh, So that's a big one coming up.
1: And if someone did run into you, would you have anything you could give them? High five, maybe. oh.
0: Yeah, we could probably give him a high five. Do we have yeah. anything? Oh, else? oh, are you referring to uh, you my my plethora? <laughs> you know, are are you talking to me? You want to say hello to my little friend? <laughs> you want one of my yeah. stickers?
1: <laughs> I saw a picture on Twitter there of uh, some some hot stacks.
0: Yeah, man. So uh, coding block stickers are now a thing. Yes. And they turned out amazing. Um, They're not uh, gigantic. So uh, I I think it was like a two inch by two and three quarter inch, roughly, is the dimensions of it. Um, So, you know, perfect for your laptop. And uh, I'm pretty sure that it'll make the performance of it uh, that much better. Definitely. Um, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah. We can include a link to the tweet, some of the tweets about that, but definitely there's uh, links to Sticker sticker Mule. And, uh, you know, hey, if we happen to see you in person, we're going to be giving them out. Yeah, we'll hand them out. And, and I'm going to – I just took a
2: picture of the back of Outlaw's laptop, and I'll it's put the beautiful. picture on this post so that you can kind of see him reference. If you know how big that Apple is on a MacBook Pro, you'll see about what size it is. It's not obnoxious. Maybe it should be. But, you know <laughs> – it's a good looking
0: in our opinion it's a good looking sticker so uh, we're excited about it. I mean it's pretty much everyone's opinion. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> like actually I read a Wikipedia article about how good looking that sticker was so it's actually fact because Wikipedia is like really factual. True that. Yeah. Um so what else have we got going on? You're, uh, you're
2: going to a conference?
0: Yep, there's a uh, Atlanta uh here in the Atlanta area connect.tech previously known as connectjs. Is October twentieth through the twenty second, so that's always a fun one. Um, I'm really curious because last in previous years it was more JavaScript based, uh, but now that they've kind of gone more general uh, purpose with with you know Connect uh, to see where that's going to go. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. And then, uh, unrelated to conferences, <clears throat> I wanted to bring up uh, this story. About did you know that your web browser hates your SSD? Have you have you heard about this? So yeah, this is making the rounds here lately. About um it it was an article that uh, someone published based off of their findings specific to Firefox, but um, they're finding out that Chrome is as bad too. And the short story is this guy. Uh, there was this tool called SSD Life, and he had found that on a day that he wasn't using his computer, it was just sitting there idle, um, 12 gig gigabytes was written to his SSD in the day that he wasn't really using it. 12 gigabytes. And it turned out to be Firefox. So you know how Chrome and Firefox have this amazing feature where like, uh, if you crash the browser, you can just... Um, on a Mac you could like command shift tab and reopen all your tabs or control shift tab on uh, control shift T T. on a windows. I'm sorry. I think it's a tab on the Mac. I meant command shift T on the Mac and, and it'll just uh, reinstate all your browser sessions, right? All your tabs back open, right? Well, it turns out that that comes at an extreme cost. What? So what's basically what's happening is uh, in the case of Firefox, uh, it's writing the state, of the browser out to a file called recovery.js and it's doing it once every 15 seconds and it turns out it's not being very efficient about it so rather than looking for deltas and writing the deltas it's just full dumping the state out every 15 seconds Um, and you know that is costing your SSD over time right it's wearing it out prematurely dude
2: and we all have at least 10 tabs open at any given time
0: right yeah so, so, uh, yeah, it turns out, turns out that's pretty bad. So there's, I, I did see in the, uh, Mozilla, uh, bug tracker, there was a, um, a ticket to you have it fixed. It wasn't addressed yet, but there is a setting, uh, we'll include a link to the original st- story at, uh, serve the com, And, uh, you basically the quick fix for it though, was that you could go into, uh, specific to Firefox, you could go to browser.sessionstore.interval and you could change the um setting there from some something other than 15 seconds, whatever you feel is appropriate for your setting. Uh I personally I'm just going to wait until they fix it in the browser, but uh man, that's crazy. Yeah. It it was interesting though. And again, uh Chrome has a similar issue, so the author he did update it to say that he was um, investigating that uh, he, he was seeing 24 gig a day of writes from Chrome, oh, so wow. Chrome is definitely uh, you know just as bad. Uh, I no word on Safari or Edge. Maybe it's too early, but you know I'm not enough of I, I honestly I guess I just stick to Firefox and Chrome more than those two. Right, I'm pretty sure that. Safari at least has the same command shift T feature, doesn't it? Never hmm. tried it. Um, yeah. yeah, so, so, well, I mean, if it does do it though, then you would assume that it might be doing something similar, right? But yeah, it hates your SSD, so
2: unreal. Well, I, I have some unfortunate news. My tip from last episode, which I was really excited about, and I mean, even Outlaw had clicked and seen it. While we were putting, you know, doing the show notes.
0: Well, I mean, once you got the link right. right After I said it right,
2: OAuth for aspnet.com has been down basically since our episode was released. They're getting a DNS gateway failure or some garbage. So I'm hoping it comes back up, but just a heads up for you guys. I think
0: that's just the strength of our audience (laughs) (laughs) is like hammering on that site. You know, the poor guy's like, oh my gosh, why is my site getting so much traffic? Are we the new Kardashians of the internet? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to go there.
1: Did not see that one coming. Yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, I feel like you're trying to say something about my backside here. <laughs> um, and I really don't appreciate it.
2: So uh, that's unfortunate, though. I mean, seriously. And it was an excellent resource. I even tried to go to the Google Cached version of it, and it wouldn't pull up either. So uh, for the time being, that's just down. If it doesn't fix itself, then we'll pull it from the tip, the yeah. show tips. But
0: And that's it for the news <laughs> <laughs> uh, or hey. is it? I feel like that, that hurt. <laughs> I, I feel like Alan might have uh, a little bit of news he wants to share. Or did you want us to announce it, uh, Joe? You, you want?
1: Uh, yeah, you want me to announce it?
0: Yeah, you do it.
1: All right. Um, whisper it. Just whisper it. Just mumble it. It's uh, it's actually really exciting. I don't know where we're dancing around it. Uh, Alan has become an official Microsoft uh, MVP.
2: Yeah, man. You know what? It's actually super duper exciting. Yeah. I congrats, honestly man. didn't
1: realize I was
2: going to be that excited about it until it happened. And then I was like,
1: <laughs> "You didn't realize it.
2: how bad you wanted it. You didn't right. want to
0: admit to yourself how bad you wanted it until I, it was done." I
2: think it's one of those things, right? Like if yep. if you're playing a sport or something, you're not going to feel like you really want it that bad because if you lose, you're going to feel kind of crushed. Uh-huh. So. But, yeah, man, it's pretty exciting. A um, lot of cool stuff that that goes along with it. So super stoked about it. And, uh, yeah, man, it, you know, anybody that wants to give back to the community or whatever, I, I'm hoping that both Joe and Mike will get it here in one of the uh, next go-arounds because uh, it, it really is kind of cool to have that. So yeah,
0: Well, congratulations, man.
1: Thank We're, you very we much. We are yep.
2: very excited for you. It, it's, yeah, it's it almost looks sick. like
1: you're afraid to say, it. You're like, I don't know, they might take it away.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean you can't I, I can't say anything. I've got an NDA so I can't actually talk to you guys anymore. So oh, crap. you'll be doing the show by yourself. <laughs> Dang and let's not forget the trophy. It, oh I have a trophy. I'll have to I'll have to put a picture of that up there. That's that's actually really exciting too. So um All right. Yeah, man. Um so thank you and uh super stoked.
0: All right. Well uh there was an email that we got in um between the last episode and this one that I thought was an amazing question that I, I really loved. And I think, Joe, you're going to like this question too. I think this is going to be one right up your alley as well. And uh, it, it, so, Brian writes in, says he's listening to the back catalog and he's currently on the episode about unit testing. And that he's a grader for an undergraduate class. And, uh, you know, he's grading the uh, code that um, the students have submitted. And that, you know, a lot of the students they've they've developed it they tested it to make sure that the app worked but uh he was able to quickly break their apps right um uh-huh. so i mean you know you can imagine it being a calculator app that uh you know maybe he's just you know doing very large numbers to get overflows or whatever you know who knows, who knows how he's breaking it but the point is is he's breaking it so he asked the question like how balanced do you guys think the testing should be between showing that something works and trying to prove that it doesn't.
2: I I honestly like the approach of proving it doesn't work.
0: Well, the first the first thing that I loved about this question was like, what an amazing way to like just boil down the testing into like right. you're either pro- all of your unit tests are either fall into one category, either you're you're proving that it it does work, or you're trying to prove to yourself that it doesn't work, right, or to other people, right? Joe, what's your take?
1: Um, yeah, I like trying to break things, but, uh, I mean, it kind of depends on the, the site that you're working on. Like if you're a Google or an Amazon and you expect you know, two, 200 million, you know, clicks per second, whatever uh, a day, then, um, you know, people are going to find stuff like that. But if it's your little calculator app or something, then, uh, you know, I, I run a little calculator site and sometimes people do weird stuff and get errors. And I can I feel like if it do something weird every once in a while to get an error, I don't really care that much. Uh, it's just not that high on the priorities as making sure that the happy path works well. So, um, but in you know, your unit test? In your audience, but say what, but in your unit test Oh, in the unit test, oh no, uh, I don't even do that much weird stuff in the unit test. I like to make sure the coverage is good when I'm doing unit testing and and just try to, um, make sure that, you know, the normal stuff kind of works, but I don't go too crazy trying to do like fuzz testing or passing, you know, extremely large negative numbers or anything. that's t- t- totally out there. Oh, but like- I, I think if unit testing is more of a design tool anyway, for me, it's, my main purpose isn't correctness. It's just uh, you know, design tool and um, for, for shortening my feedback cycle and making sure I don't break things. Well, it is important to note though,
0: that you could have amazing coverage, uh, you know, from your unit tests and still have errors, right? You could still, oh, yeah. you know, easily have flaws because coverage unit test coverage does not equal thoroughness.
2: Oh, coverage could just mean that you hit that method one time. That's it, right? That's,
0: yeah yeah I mean it doesn't mean it doesn't matter yeah exactly, so it doesn't have any measurement about you know how many different types of states you passed in maybe right. uh yeah. literally like you said, it just got executed at least one time, but I guess so that's a different approach though than what I take, and so I was really surprised to hear you say that Joe, because I'm normally trying to throw uh random things at at, you know when I'm writing my unit test I'm trying to throw like random things and trying to come up with in my mind like hey uh what about this scenario if I pass this in or that in like what happens here or what about the extremes am I handling the extremes correctly you know what happens if like okay nulls for example what happens if a null gets passed in uh is that properly being you know dealt with
1: uh which you know may that definition may vary depending on case you know things like that but maybe throwing an exception is the right answer in that case. You know, if you try to divide by zero, you should get a divide by zero, or you should get some sort of error that relates to that. Well, and so maybe an exception that. isn't wrong. Exception does
0: that. not mean error, right. right? Like catching, like throwing an exception is a very valid thing. So in your unit test, you could say assert that you know an a certain exception type is thrown. Yep. I I mean for me,
2: like when I was when I was reading this and I and I thought about it just internally. So you know it depends on how core it is to something and how controlled it is at the time when you're writing the unit test so like for a calculator you want you probably do want to check the edge cases right because it's a calculator if it's something in your in your app that you know at the time that the unit test was created that there's controlled inputs and outputs then maybe you just check for those certain types of controlled things. Like I don't know that I would go crazy on something that didn't allow Mm -hmm. negative numbers, trying to test negative numbers and that kind of thing. So I don't know. It's, that's such a tough one. I think that when you're writing your unit test, at least to me, you should try and think of the different ways that it could break and write your unit test against that. So I kind of like the approach of
0: how can this break? Um, yeah. Yeah, another thing that came to mind too, though, which isn't exactly related, but I know that, like, I've done this where, um, you know, someone will report a bug and they'll say, like, oh, if you do this scenario, then it's broken. And then I'll be like, okay, great. I'll take that scenario, I'll write up a unit test to mock that scenario, and then code until that new unit test passes. Yep. And that's a good way to do it. So I'm I'm like literally adding on, uh, you know, to the to the quote library of unit tests in that scenario. Yep, but I do think there's a point of going overboard,
2: right? Like you can't check for every single little thing that's going to happen. Mm. So I, I don't know, man. It, that's it, again, it kind of depends on how core it is to what you're doing. So hmm. I don't know. Great, great question. And obviously, there's already I mean, between the three of us, we've we've kind of, we've kind of got different opinions so i mean for a professor that's even got to be a little bit more difficult right yeah so. i don't know
0: if he said he was he, he was a professor just a grader he was grading yeah it wasn't clear on that point but yeah it was totally amazing question though like I, I like i said i really loved the fact that it was broken down into you know either you're trying to show something that works or something that doesn't work um cuz i never really thought about unit tests in either way like that was just testing that it, um you know it works but then when i when i got this question i started thinking about it, i guess uh, then that's when it kind of made me you know a moment of introspection there and i thought well i guess i actually am trying to test that you know to prove to myself that it doesn't work and that i need to fix something and then i'm happily surprised when oh it actually did work right. <laughs> what do you know got it right awesome all right well we're going to get into the uh, next uh, section here of our clean code Uh, series and similar to the last episode we will be doing a book giveaway Uh, last episode we were doing uh, three books so one from each of us and uh, we were going to do when are we going to do that drawing though Uh, were we going to give like one episode between it so so we'll do the drawing for episode 47 when we record episode 49 yep and we'll do the drawing for this episode forty eight when we record fifty. Yep. Is the plan.
2: And then that way that'll give everybody time to listen and comment if they get a chance. So um I So think, there'll be one fair. book
0: giveaway for episode forty eight, though. So your chances have are you know are dwindling. But if you if you are in, say, episode forty seven and you want to enter in forty eight as well, you can, but obviously if you win in forty seven, then it won't count in forty eight. Yep. And same rules as last time. Go to the show notes for episode 48. Uh, So www.codingblocks.net slash episode 48 and leave a comment there to enter yourself into the giveaway.
2: Yep. And there have been some fantastic comments
0: on 47.
2: So, you know, feel free to add to that one, too, because there's still time to enter to win. Again, 47 is three books we're giving away. 48 is one. So your chances on forty seven are a little bit better, so definitely go up there and continue to leave comments and uh and we'll revisit this in one more episode. All right. Word. So so here we go. This is chapter four three. No, three. Chapter three that we're diving into, which is functions. And uh this is an absolutely fantastic chapter. A lot of meat in here, so uh let's jump on in. Yeah, so this was
0: the um you know I I gave it away in the last episode, but this was specifically the chapter where uh it time boxed the function and says, You know, can you look at a function and understand it completely within three minutes because if you can't if you have to study it for longer than three minutes, then that method is or that function is too complex, there's something wrong with it,
1: yep. And three minutes is a long time, you know, but uh, I kind of think that uh, nowadays attention spans have shortened a little bit, and now it's more like one minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, actually, though, is that even fair? Because uh, have you seen some link queries?
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So it's funny. They had their first and second rule of functions. The first one is a function should be small. And then the second rule was it should be smaller than that. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, that's pretty much it. And they say that it should be barely 20 lines long.
1: I love that.
0: 20 lines.
1: I mean if, if 20 lines in Java is like nothing. <laughs> That's like no code. That's hello world. That's just your declarations.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but they're talking about the, the entire method, not... Uh, you know
2: all the usings and
0: everything yeah, right, along yeah. with it, and the class. No, this is
2: specifically the function or yeah. a method, right? Not, not all your headers. Oh, at so the that's top actually a great
0: point too to call out. Like, we're, we're not talking about like. There's a whole other chapter for classes. Yes, right? this is not a class. So this is you know specifically, like the previous chapter was on like the guts inside of a function. and This one is in you know is about the function. The function. I mean, one
2: of my very favorite things in this entire chapter was when you're looking at a function, it should read like a story. Like you should be able to just kind of scan down it and it say something like do this or get this or, or do this and then, you know, stop that. I I just love that idea that it's almost like a narrative.
1: Yeah. And I love that it's broken down too. So like, let's say you hop into a public method and you're trying to find something in there and change and you see, you know, less than 20 lines and it's like, do this, then do that, then do something else. And you know, oh, I need to go to something else. So you can hop right into that function. And you've just skipped possibly hundreds of lines that you didn't have to scroll through. And I know, um, I'm sure you guys have been on like, the phone or on a WebEx or something with somebody and you're talking through and they're like, yeah, scroll down about 190 lines <laughs> down to 414. Oh, you're just man. scrolling, scrolling. You're, you're watching the ifs go in and out, you know, like a waveform and you're, <laughs> you know, you're just trying to keep track of where you are. Well, here's like the classic, though, is that the
0: function should do one and only one thing. So if you had to describe to somebody what this function does, and you have to use the word and, chances are your function is doing more than one thing.
2: Yeah, and this Mm -hmm. one, and I love this one, but there were even parts where they say this may seem sort of contradictory, when you say it's only doing one thing, because what if you do have a logical statement in there? Like if this, then this, right. And what they described was basically when you say it's doing one thing, you're actually only accomplishing one task. That doesn't mean there's not a decision in that task, but you're only doing that one very specific thing.
0: Well, yeah. And actually I'm pretty sure this was the same section too, or maybe it was another one where it was talking about, um, switch statements and how that, that felt, kind of, uh, wrong. Oh, actually it was the next section. It was, it was in a, uh, uh, later section within the book, but, um, where I'll go ahead and skip ahead to it where the switch statements felt kind of like a betrayal to the one doing one thing. Right. Um, but the one, uh, blessed, place where they they said you know you know use a switch statement was in the case of say a factory right yeah you know that was an example where i was like okay well this is okay this is an acceptable version
2: but it's only doing one thing right it's creating it's, instances it's of class returning
0: some instance yeah. type right yep uh and oh, so yeah. the switch was acceptable there but if yep. you're doing a switch inside of some other function and you're using that switch to decide you know determine logic then it's doing too much.
1: Yep. And the uh, thing with switch statements, they're like gremlins and uh, being fed after midnight. You hardly ever see just one, unless it's in a factory. The deal is, you do a little a little switch statement somewhere, and you're like, oh, well, you know, this word, if case A, you know, case B is this. Inevitably, you end up doing another one to kind of translate it back at some point, point. and yep. then the next thing you know, you're doing a third one. Next, so you know you got like 16 freaking switch statements and you're starting to think maybe I should have encapsulated this somewhere.
2: Yep, and they're almost always doing the same type thing. And they, they even talk about that. If you're doing a switch statement, chances are you should have some sort of method on a class that will return something, right? So like instead of saying, uh, you know, case when, uh, you know, origin is American, then return first, middle, and last name. Case when, you know, some other... Thing then just return first name and last name. Instead of that, you should have different classes of those types that say get full name, and then they can do their own thing. So there's no switch statement there. You literally had an interface that had get full name as the method, and then when you call it, it
0: does its own thing. Well, I, I did remember something, uh, a little meta here. It was that I'd forgotten that we wanted to do the re- code review live code review remember, remember that conversation oh
2: that you yeah you said that there was something <laughs> that bothered you in a code thing that i had done and i don't remember what well it was. It,
0: there was some code of mine that uh you had you know I'm, I'm gonna quote it cleaned up right okay but but i remember and the reason why i quote this quoted that is because after the after you did it and you sent me the the pull request you said yeah i guess uh you know everything that we've been talking about with clean code kind of got to me. So I decided to clean some of this up. And then I was like, that's what was kind of like, like not a stab at me, but it it kind of like, well, I was like, whoa, hold on, Wait a minute. Oh, because, because I think you took that wrong. First off, I didn't even know it was your code. I know you didn't. That was the beauty of it. But, but (laughs) because like there was, there was, um, because like where the, the method that you cleaned, you quote cleaned, there was there were uh there's two things that I thought like okay that was honestly you know bravo that that one part was good because one there were some hard coded numbers in there and you uh, you know identified you know made those constants basically so I was like okay yeah that one I agree with and then there was this other one that was actually a hack specific to IE that you put into a method named as much and I thought okay IE <laughs> hack. Yeah. you know yeah that makes sense. But the rest of it, though the quote cleaning of the rest of it, where yeah, it was reducing lines. I was like, well, that's really not fair because I had I had like maybe because of the the way I var things and this was in JavaScript. So the way I var things up is I'll have like one per line, right? So I had like you know var some variable comma some other variable comma some other variable, and so a part of your cleaning of that was just getting rid of that, and you had replaced it with method calls to return back those values, but nothing was ever being varred, So it was constantly having to go back and reestablish what the variable was. Okay.
2: So I'll tell you why I did that. And I mean, out of context, this might be hard to follow, but basically what it was, there were the same chunk of like four or five VARs in every single method. No, the, this was only in one. No, there were several. And the reason I know this was because the reason I even did it in the first place... But you,
0: the, because you moved them into multiple methods. That's why. But the re, no, the, the original was, method
2: was one method. No, they were in multiple. And the reason I remember this is the whole reason I broke them out was because I was trying to chase down a bug that was completely not mm-hmm. obvious. It was in the core framework that we were using, and it wasn't actually in the code we were doing. But in order to identify it, I kept having to put breakpoints all over the place where these same well, things were happening. Okay,
0: so, so, th- and this is why I'm bringing this up now, because
2: at least... But you're not uh, going to let me finish. So the oh. reason I broke them out, though, Well, you was said it, because you said they were repeated. So I wanted to make it to where I had one place to go to to debug the code every single time. And that's what it boiled down to, was instead of having to put breakpoints yeah. all over the place, I could put them in one method and say, okay, did this give me back what I needed? Yes, okay, so cool, I know that's good. So,
0: so I can't comment on that, because the pull request that I saw, my code was one method that had a section of stuff VARD. And then that one method was split into a bunch of methods, and a bunch of the several of those methods were one-liners that returned back something. But instead of them being able to use a variable to get, so like picture you have a class that has uh, you know some other class that has some other class, and instead of each one being able to you know having a reference to it, it was like recalculating you know the other class to get to their class. No, it actually was. But but the point is, but the point is, here's the point. (laughs) here's the point, is that specific as it relates to this section, is that like how do you know when uh, a function is doing more than one thing? Right? And it's it's, if you can extract another function from it where it does, where the, where you can extract a function from it with a name that is not merely a restatement of the implementation, then it's doing more one thing. And that's what I'm saying here. In this example, was you had... (laughs) You had like methods where it was returning back like uh you know some some object, but it was literally a one liner that where I had it as a var statement before, and that reference was saved and kept. Now it was something that was going to be called three more times nope, by something else. Not
2: true, but basically what it was. So here's the way it worked. There was a I'm var block. This I'm gonna pull so up. So there was request. a var block, and we're not gonna go on this for too long because it's <laughs> kind of ridiculous. But there was a var block where the first variable. Set the, the second variable will build off the first one, third one, build off the second one, fourth one. But And it's the way that the framework works, right? So the problem was I needed to be able to access these things in different ways, in different points. So it wasn't like it was rebuilding it all the time. It would just be able to get to a reference because these things would look something like, um, it's ext.js is what we we're using, and it would be something like something. And I was like, well, this is kind of ridiculous because... I just need that tree. So I would say, get tree, right? And so instead of having all these dots, dot, dot, to do something, I was like, hey, just get tree. So again, it was basically just so I could get things back, and so it would read better, because when you have a bunch of dots on a line that are, you know, 60 characters long, it's hard to see what's going on. So anyways yeah. I, I think I we've, mean we've beat it up enough did that part really need to be there not so much but the cleanup that I did was more the reading
0: well throughout. yeah but this was I mean specifically this was
1: one method um to go okay, back to so that point. point is that refactoring can be a little controversial sometimes totally well,
0: well no but but, um, but yeah totally absolutely lost,
1: uh, um, absolutely it can' be um, but, on what this but, function but looks the like. point
0: was but the point that I was trying to get at was that um if it's if if you're only creating a method that's just that's Uh, How do they word it? If you're restating what the variable is, but here's the thing. Yeah. Merely restatement of the implementation. When
2: there's a bunch of dot, 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 dots, then that's really just a bunch of garbage, right? Because now you're saying, okay, I'm calling lookup reference to this and I'm doing lookup reference then I'm getting controller then I'm doing this. So the whole purpose was I need to, I need this to read more like a narrative. Get me the tree instead of get this variable and then get its controller and then get it some value, right? That doesn't read well. So the purpose was, was readability. Read it like a narration. So again, I didn't even know this was his code. No, be, that's
0: why this was so beautiful. That's why I was like, oh, man, this would be awesome. We'll but, talk about this.
2: But the restatement thing was more so along the lines of the clean code was you should be able to read the thing, right? And that was not readable because that got into the, okay, okay, okay which variable let, am let me, I
0: using? And uh, just, just for the audience to be able to follow along here, okay, right? This method that I'm talking about had four var statements. Uh, one, then one method call. One if switch or one if statement where where the if statement has one line. The else statement had one line, and then the the IE hack that you pointed out that was also one line. Now calling out the the IE part into its own thing, I thought, oh, that's awesome. That was a, that was a great idea. I liked renaming that specifically as an IE uh, hack because that's what it was. So really, there was this if statement that, you know, even with, you know, you have an if and else, and then the two lines, one for the if and then one for the else. So four lines there, right? And then there was this other one check that was like, okay, you can make the argument that, you know, is it doing more than one thing? Well, it's setting this state here and doing this if portion over here. So maybe you can make the argument there. But the point that I was getting at was that, the four lines of the VARs? I was like, well, that's not fair to call that as like cleaning up. If all I think it was you doing- took it
2: out of context, though, because the cleanup was the entire pull request. It wasn't those four lines of code, right? So, I mean, again, I think this is way <laughs> past being blown out of context in that well, the entire pull request was trying to fix a problem, and the only reason those things were pulled out like they were was so I could more easily debug. And the end state ended up being... A little bit more readable than the beginning state, and so that's really what it boiled down to. the call out wasn 't the four their well the call I guess as, like, as I go back
0: to this to this chapter though or, or this entire book rather is like there are things that they'll that they've said and done in this book that's like where where like I just clearly don't agree with right and and uh you know even in later parts of the book, like you mentioned it last time when we talked about there being um I guess you said, I forget how you worded it, but something along the lines of you felt like there were uh, not discrepancies, contradictions. but contradictions. Thank you. And and so there were things like that here too, but there are definitely things where like, you know, I didn't agree with, but then things that I did more agree with. But,
2: but here's my question though. Let's boil it down to, to the very end state. Was it better at the end of it than it was at the beginning? Not Not the VAR statements, not any particular one. Was it easier to read the method In the end
0: state of the pull request. Oh man, way to put me on the spot. No, I mean, but there was part of it. I felt that there was part of it that that there was definitely part of it that I liked, but then there was definitely part of it that I didn't like. Which is what what I'm going to say.
2: You can. It's easy to dissect things, and here and this is my take on programmers in general.
0: Oh yeah, we're a finicky bunch.
2: And no, no, it's it's not that. If if we were if we took ten programmers and we put us all in a room and we give us all the same exact task. You will get ten different programs. All right. On that outcome, and so my thing is, and e- and even with this, because I remember when you said something bothered you about it, I was like, what in the world bothered him? And, and I mean, seriously, I thought about it for five seconds, and I was like, well, it couldn't have been a big deal. I only changed like twenty lines of code. But no, but it was just more
0: about like you know, I but, enjoyed this conversation.
2: But on the flip side of it, I guess my point is, is everybody's going to have a slightly different take, and. As long as you're leaving the code, as long as you're not making it worse, right, <laughs> right? Then you're doing a good job. And and I would I would argue that anybody that looked at that, minus the VAR statements, minus anything else, if you look at that entire method that was done now, it's very readable from top to bottom, like a narration, because really the one thing that stuck in my head was that. It will Should see, you this be is able where, to read it?
0: Yeah, and so and so this is where I'm going with that. And so like you know you asked me if I thought it was better, like you know there were some parts of it that I thought like like I said, like I liked the fact that the i e eight hack was called out, but then there were other parts where I was like, well, I feel like Overall, I feel like you can over refactor nitpicking. something like like we talked about in the last episode, the boy Scout principle and and going back and and fixing cleaning up something, and I thought that, well, you know you can over refactor something or overdo something right and so why well, the beauty of this was like this was a live example and you didn't even realize that it was mine that you did and then made the comment to so I was like oh this is awesome right like <laughs> this is a great great example yeah. but whatever Th- there was another point too like going back to things that I I strongly don't uh share an opinion or same share the same opinion with the authors of the book is this step down rule right where they were saying that You know, to have their have the methods within the class listed. uh, I believe this was the section, right, where they wanted to have everything listed. um, You know, like one method as you to the next. Wait, is this the same one? Well, the step down rule. I think I'm further up in the book. Well,
2: the step down rule. No, it's down there. He just marked it in the show notes. The step down rule was everything should be at the same basic operating level.
1: Yeah, so it's like a nice hierarchy of organization. (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually okay, that's the not
0: the, that's not the one I was thinking of then. I was thinking there's another um, that I thought was referred to as the step-down rule. There's another section in here where they talk about uh, organizing your functions so that uh, the, the caller is above the callee. So you always have your callee function below the callers. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't remember. And if I, I saw hated that. that when I saw that. Um, basically, like, if you had... If you had a a method, oh gosh, uh, you know that would be like create user and inside of the create user method, it has a uh, method called uh, set name, let's say that it calls, then set method would be listed below create user yeah and and oh. the reason why I specifically hated that was I was like, well, you know have you as you refactor these things over time, that's all going to change. like and and here's the thing is like I don't even have a good answer for this because oh, my, man. My preference for this, oh, why something crazy? Uh, we've happen. argued
1: about this before. I just had a flashback to you and I like three years ago having this exact same conversation. Oh, I won by the way.
2: <laughs>
0: you did? What Would you say?
1: Yeah, I convinced you. Uh, I guess you must have forgotten. <laughs> um, well, we'll find
0: out because because my preference is to just put them in alphabetical order. I hate that. I yes, just that's put, put them, totally wrong.
2: The IDE gives you a drop down for the methods, and it puts it in alphabetical order. So, so.
0: what? So you just put them in random order? Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Totally. See that no, makes even random. less
0: sense. Like the so the author <laughs> of the book, I put my privates and my publics together, and past that, I don't I mean, care. Okay, fine. I I I'm okay with organizing the privates and the publics. Uh, you know, having some categorization there, or like whatever the the level is. I that part, uh, I'm le- I have less of a problem with. But to say that you know always categorize it so where like let's assume they're all public, and. You know, the create user is definitely ahead of the set user or uh you know, and let's say that there was a, a git uh uh you know, uh let's see, set user no, I said set user name, right? So what what could set user call that would possibly be alphabetically after? But you know, let's say it calls some git method, the set u- set username calls some git method that you know, it just doesn't make sense to me to do that. So I would prefer to just have all the methods in alphabetical order. But you know, even with refactoring the names, the names could change too. So therefore the order's gonna change. Yeah, but like to just that. do them in random order as what you're saying, no, no, That's so not random. I'll just take see, it,
2: I'll take it back. I actually don't do random. I usually put if we have sets and gets, I'll put those together, but I'll put the newest one at the end. That's almost always what I do mainly because I don't want a bunch of things jumping around in code. Like, the whole thing about renaming, I can't stand that. Like, I I don't know. somebody renaming? No, no. If somebody renames, I don't want them to also move it because it just wreaks oh, oh. havoc on, like... Yep. So, yeah. so what you're saying about putting them in alphabetical order, if you rename that thing and move it, you're going to confuse... Every single Well that's piece why of I said I don't software. have a
0: good answer for this because if you rename it and you leave it as is, now it's out of order. Hey Joe, right? I feel like you were gonna
2: say something. What what's
0: your Yeah take I'm on I'm
1: blowing my top over here, guys. It's <laughs> totally incorrect. The book is spot on. And actually I think I probably got all of my functional like habits from this book because I agree with pretty much everything in this chapter. But I mean, you've got to have it in order, and these things do not move around like that. They don't swirl oh, yeah. around like crazy. And if you're worried about stuff being called multiple times by multiple different public methods, and your class is probably too big, and it's a monster class. And doing something. That's if an your class is small, take. then you should have mostly private methods, and most of those guys shouldn't really move around. You know, you've got your your function basically divided, and your your public function divided into major sections. Like there's a part that gets the data, you do some logic, and then you you know do some presentation type stuff and that stuff doesn't really move around too much. Oh man, and that's it's a nice good point. that you can scroll no. past your public Come into your privates. On. And no then way, you basically dude. see them in the order that the public method calls them. It's so great to read like that.
0: No, man, cuz you're going if you refactor some stuff and now all of a sudden some other method is calling it or you know you break stuff apart now all of a sudden the the order could get out of whack.
2: I don't know, man. I still don't like the alphabetical thing cuz I don't like if a name changes that you're moving it around. I would actually but I mean it, but the the
0: same order could change based off of their recommendation about the function the way you call it you know the, no, the callee should be below the caller, agreed. That's I mean, why I you put could my change new ones around at the
2: bottom of that section. Like, I, I don't even worry about it. We have IDEs to answer these problems, there's no reason for you to manually well, I mean, alphabetize they had, things. They had or, IDEs back then, too. Yeah, I, I don't know. Hey, like, one don't other get thing. me
0: wrong, I'm not <clears throat> saying that I'll go and throw in a, a pull request where I've done nothing but change the order of the methods. You actually complained to in, me about
2: a PR a while back because I didn't put something in alphabetical order. I was like, I didn't even notice this, like, I I, I oh, because it was my code. <laughs> That's why. That's why. I was, like, I was like, really, man? I was like, really? totally not changing this. I, <laughs> yeah, I, hate, to I do
1: hate seeing that. I'll see like 40 things in a row, you know, like say it's some sort of config file. Something, and then so I didn't do it in Output order. I can't stand it. Yeah. I figured they're,
0: they're both equally arbitrary. Like, what does it matter? Because uh, they're going to get refactored. Things are going to change. So really, you know, Alphabetical is just as good. Hey, so going no.
2: back real quick, so getting back to this whole thing, this actually comes from that PR that you were talking about earlier that I didn't even realize I had modified your code. <laughs> one of the things I did is, and I like this in the book, and they actually say right here, code within if blocks or statement should be one line long, meaning they should call a function. I don't know if that's overkill or not, but I ended up taking this approach because there was something like, hey, if this is the micro nav bar, before it would said something like set width to 50 or something, right? Right.
0: That was the hard-coded part that I liked.
2: And then it would say, else, if it's not the micro navigation, then set the width to 300, right. we'll say. And instead what I did, and I liked it because it made sense, I said set micro nav size, right? And then I had another method that was like set, full. you know, large or full nav size. Yeah. And and that whole narration thing to me was just beautiful because it's easy enough to see that hey one was fifty so it was smaller and the other one was two fifty, but it's not it's not it doesn't explain things as well, right? Basically
0: it's, for anyone trying to visualize what this piece of code did is uh if you've ever seen a navigation of an app or a site where you have a hamburger uh on the upper left or upper right, and you click that hamburger and some navigation grows uh, it, you know, grows out, right? Then that's what this is. So this navigation could have either a, a miniaturized version of itself or a full width version of itself, and you know depending on what the state was when you this method that was refactored, this method was responsible for flipping the state to one or the other. Yep. So you would pass in, uh, you know, what what the or it would determine what the current state is and flip it to the other state. And so that's what he's referring to.
2: So, yeah, just the readability, like, hey, set micro nav size or set full nav size. And that really stuck with me. I liked it. I think overall I usually code that way, but definitely in a lot of cases I would have probably just said set with 50, set with to 300, right? Just because you know in your head this is what you're doing, and so it's real easy to not just break that into another method that's really a one-liner but it's very easy to read it when you go down through that. Yeah, so
0: those are the parts that I liked.
2: Yeah, so... Uh, Unvarring then, my vars. Oh, whatever. <laughs> the, the next one that I'm, I'm curious as you guys' <laughs> take is the indent shouldn't be more than two tabs. Which basically means you shouldn't have much more than an if else, if anything else oh, in there.
0: I think we may have covered something similar to this concept before with the uh, code calisthenics concept. I don't know. does that I know uh, Joe remembers that right you you know what I'm talking about I right? know
1: I always complain about this in programming languages particularly python
2: oh the the tabbing actually means something to the language
1: yeah well well, I mean with a python, I've seen like terrible scripts that have like five levels of indentation and because python doesn't uh doesn't have braces. It's like I end up like holding up a piece of paper on the screen and like scrolling down at the Like, okay, where is this if end? Because someone you know wrote a really long function and uh, had lots of levels of indentation. And both of those are pet peeves of mine. Uh,
2: that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea that a method is really only you know you might have one conditional and that's pretty much it, or you have a bunch of method calls that each are doing different things. So I I like it. I don't know that it's um, practical in every sense but i do like the idea behind it
0: so here was one that's kind of in the same vein as our last conversation which was to use a descriptive name and that long names are not a bad thing don't be afraid to use them where was that uh right here see Uh,
2: that's way far down here look i'm gonna show you my book yeah you see that you're not looking at the show notes at all i'm just joking (laughs) um oh man that's boring um yeah, totally. I mean, the name should tell you exactly what it does, like it's at, at an instance. But with that, there also came the whole idea that you should use standard type names, right? Like set or get, or standards in Java, or do, or you know something like that.
1: Oh man, you know it turns crazy when gets do other things, which happens oh, all the time. Yes, totally. you say get first name, it goes out, queries something in a database, stores it in the cache, and then returns man that's not getting that's doing a bunch of stuff,
0: yeah, yeah, well, I think the idea was that uh your your um functions should be verb names and your uh properties should be noun names,
1: yep, yeah, right, I do like that One I thing- just, uh I just don't like when functions do too much, and so you might do something like hey uh get me elements out of this array and it actually removes the other elements or it just modifies some sort of other state and stuff and it, or it and sorts not, it in uh, order to really get it apparent from the yeah yeah so none of that
0: but you know as it relates to the names though especially the long names like it made me think because especially my unit tests are my unit test names get really long like really long yeah they should be descriptive right yeah because i I try to write my unit test to where you know there's no comments there from the unit test name alone, you can get an idea as to what I'm testing uh you know the method that I'm trying to test and you know what i'm trying the scenario that I'm trying to test and what I expect to happen as a result of that. All in the name. And so you can look at it and they get really long. Yeah, I mean, but
2: it's nice because when you see that they've passed or failed, you know exactly what passed or failed without going and looking at the code. Yeah. Which is what you want. Um, Getting into your, uh, well, Joe's got this highlighted. Uh, One way to know if you named it well is to put two on the function name and see if it does what you think it should.
1: Oh, right. I don't understand
2: that at all.
0: Yeah, but no, wasn't that...
2: To get first name, right? To get last name, does it actually do it? To set first name, to set last name, you know, or
0: no? That was that was based off of the the logo language, which is one that I'm not familiar with, but it used the keyword to in the same way that uh, Ruby and Python would use def. Hmm. Oh. and so they were saying like, you know, if you could if you can oh, that's um, cool. describe it within the two format.
1: Uh, so i 'm not defining not. this function i 'm saying to do this action does yes. this, yes, so it 's just a different way of thinking about it okay yeah, yeah. You, we we
0: can describe the function by describing it as a brief two paragraph, yep.
2: making it a verb right yep. um the uh the thing that we started to talk about earlier, the step down rule was kind of interesting, and honestly, I think is probably one of the most difficult things to do was keeping things on the same level of abstraction like they, in the book they had a code example where they were doing like a, a, a setup up and a teardown of some sort of method and it was doing things like getting html and setting paths and all that kind of stuff and they said you know keeping things on the same level you actually have to think about because get html doesn't belong in the same pa- place as get path doesn't belong in the same place as path dot append like they're all different le- levels of abstraction and that that can be difficult
1: Oh man, I tell you the worst methods I've ever written in my life have all been refactors of existing code where I just started like kind of starting to separate stuff out. Like I'm gonna grab these six lines, refactor those to a new method, and then you know the, the refactoring tool will grab all the arguments and stuff that it touches, and next thing you know it's like, whoa, I'm passing in seven arguments, two of them are out and it returns something. Oh god. And and you start looking at the code, and it didn't look so bad when it was in the function, but then when you realize when you start to refactor that that um, the reason it's doing that is because it's all mixed together. It's grabbing data, it's doing some logic on it, it's rearranging it for output, all in the same you know kind of spot. And then you've got like a 400 line uh, right. function that does this sort of stuff. But once you need to start rearranging these things or changing the presentation, you realize that now you've got to also start changing your data code and your logic code and your all sorts of stuff. And it's just got its fingers everywhere, and you can see that it's total spaghetti. But None of that was visible when you first looked at that function because if you read it top to bottom, it kind of made sense. And that and that's, but it just wasn't organized very well. Yeah, and that's where you just give up and you're like, I'm just going to commit this as is and move on. And that's and actually, sometimes you have to.
2: <laughs> and you know what? That's a killer comment and a call out because what you just said with those refactors is. The problem is there's not enough abstraction, right? Because what you were just saying with all those, you know, these out variables and all this setup and it's going and doing all this stuff, because it's not abstracted well, you can't pull it out. You can't just refactor it into a new method. You've really got to start thinking about, do I need to create another class that will do this, right? And then does that need to have another class that does some other things? And, And it becomes a major effort,
1: yeah. And so I figure it's like kind of like the Boy Scout rule. So by first it just kind of extracting out those, um, those methods for the part, even if it does mean having multiple arguments and other really gross stuff, I do think of it as a, a, an example of the Boy Scout rule where I'm not changing things too much, but I'm at least showing what the problems are because before they were hidden. And so I'm not actually making things worse. I'm just exposing the problems that were there. So what about breaking your function up into sections? means it's too long. That's what they say. What about SQL, though? Because that's where I do a lot of banners. <laughs> like, here are my declares. Here's the 60-line query that does this part.
0: Well, I feel Next. like the one place where this is totally acceptable, and and this is fighting words if you don't agree, would be in the unit test, though. Because I like the... the I think they call it something else in the book, if I remember right, but I, I know it now as the uh, arrange... Uh, Act Act and assert uh, format. So you'll have like three sections of your code. One section is where you're just arranging the state that you want to test. There's the act where you're going to actually do whatever action you expect you're trying to test. And then the assert is where you're going to test the
1: result of that action.
2: That's interesting. I mean, you could break those down into private methods, right? That do the arrange, the act, and the that's insert. exhausting.
1: It, it would and be. the arrange would be annoying because you're usually setting a bunch of variables. So it's like, are you going to write a class then and return that class for every? Nah, that'd be horrible. Know, yeah, yeah. And every it test would be, be three readable. private methods in yeah. a class.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, I think in I, unit that's test, what I'm saying. Like unit tests is the one place where I feel like this is acceptable. Yeah, I would agree with that because it, also too, like, <laughs> yeah, because what happens now when you want to have uh, okay. Let's say you did break it out into methods. So let's not even talk about classes, but you know, you have one methods where, uh, you know, I don't even know what that method name might look like, but it's got to be descriptive because that's what they said over here on page thirty-eight. It would basically be the uh, same 30, name, same 40, name of your thirty-nine
2: method with
0: uh, arrange,
2: right? It'd be yeah, do it be horrible
0: arrange. arrange, and then here's the state name, you know, whatever you're gonna set up, yep. and you know, uh, arrange. Integers that might overflow the buffer, <laughs> uh, as the method name maybe. But then you know, as soon as you start having like more than that one method using that same thing, and they need ugly. to change something, then it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to have two versions of this method, one that's slightly different. Yeah, that's just gross, man. Just keep your. Un- I think in unit tests, this is okay, because also, your unit test should be small enough, anyways. Yeah, agreed. Uh, What's the longest unit test you've ever written, Joe?
1: Oh, you don't want to ask me that. I'm sure it's been oh, terrible. Okay.
0: Three lines. Because my unit test, where I was going with that, though, is the unit tests are normally like, you know, 10 ish lines, maybe. Yeah, they're not I mean, terrible. they're not usually yeah. big because, you know, there's a couple where you're setting the variables and then the rest is just, you know, one method, one assert.
1: Yep. Yeah, I've done some terrible things, though, like initializing <laughs> huge objects and stuff.
2: Some terrible things. Yeah, I really have. Uh, and That's, you can watch I all that on shocked. YouTube here in the near future.
1: I've been that guy when you're when you're looking at some code and you're like, Who did this? <laughs> Apparently Alan thought that when he refactored some of my uh next time
2: I'm not Sorry. sending him the pull request. Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> that was the most amazing
2: part. Um oh, so this next point the smaller and more focused a function, the easier it is to name. That kind of just goes with the saying, right? Like, that kind of makes sense. Um, Don't be afraid to make a long name. That's what we said a little while ago. Um, Oh, this one. This one, I am absolutely, I have been the person who did this in the past, and after reading this, I felt so ashamed. (laughs) A long name is better than a long comment.
0: Very true. I mean, I've read some of your comments.
2: Hey, look, man, our buddy Will, our buddy Will <laughs> argued this with me a while back and I think he might have even referenced clean code. I was like, "Get out of here, man." And then after, you know, when I when I read this, I was like, "You know what, man? He's so right." Like if you have to write a super long comment to describe what the method's doing, there's something wrong. Right. Right? And sometimes I found myself writing these comments about methods that existed, right? <laughs> And probably I should have done the Boy Scout rule and gone back and cleaned it up to make it more... Just rename the method. ...descriptive or something like that. Right. Um, so uh, plus one to Will on this one. I definitely took a negative one, and it kind of hurt a little bit when I read that.
0: Yeah, I feel like with today's tools, man, to refactor, you know, to change the name of a method or a variable, it's so rid- ridiculously simple. The only reason why I could even think that you might want to hesitate on it is if you're fixing you know bug A and then to make this other change B would it's so such you know like a class for example or a method that is so widely used that in order to make that change and commit it, you're gonna you know completely hide the bug fix that you're trying to make. Mm. That that's the only reason why I could think that well maybe do that in a separate commit. Yeah,
2: and that can happen. I've definitely seen it where a whole page is cleaned up and you're like, man, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. We've
0: actually talked about this too. I think going back to, um, it might have been, what's the source control etiquette episode? Episode three, I think maybe. Was it that long ago? Yeah, it was a while back. Um, But I remember we talked about it at one point, like uh, this pattern that I've followed before that maybe I haven't been as diligent about here in uh, recent months. But... I've definitely done this before where like let's say let's say I have some ticket and I like to create my branches off of whatever the ticket number is just because it makes it easy for me to to see what it is later. And a lot of tools you, if you include that as part of your uh commit message, you know it can link it up as well. Um so if I have a bug 123 that I'm working in in branch 123 and I see an opportunity to do a refactoring but it is gigantic. Then I'll put the pull request in for branch one, two, three, and then I'll create a new branch called something like one, two, three cleanup.
2: Nice. Like and then,
0: that. and then it builds off of the bug fix of one, two, three. Right. Yep. And then, um, it does all the cleanup and it's a pull request back into one, two, three. I like that. You know, so it's like, okay, here you can, you, you can see this pull request by itself in isolation but if you also like this other fix, you know, then you can approve it too.
2: Yeah, I like that. It, it's or a nice way it. to separate it. Yeah.
0: So I, you know, we, it came up I think in the last episode, and mm-hmm. I forgot. I I remembered as I, uh, um, after that episode about that um, that workflow. So I thought I'd mention that again.
2: All right, so the next one, we are definitely not getting through the next chapter. <laughs> I feel like we're, we're like a third of the way through this one, so we're going to have to... No, yeah. totally. Uh, that's crazy. All right,
0: let's talk about function arguments. Well, I mean, we've already done enough arguing, so can't we just get along? <laughs> it's well, all done. <laughs> I mean,
2: Func- functions have arguments. That's what you Now need you now. see
0: how our pull requests go. Do you remember, like, this is where I started, like, the, the difference between good code... And and bad code was that drawing where it was measured by the number of what uh, WTFs <laughs> per minute, right? That's the that's the difference. That's so accurate. <laughs> well, this was
1: interesting because it was very specific about how many functions you should or how many arguments you should pass in. Totally. Yeah, it started yeah. using words. So I was like, well, I guess that's a word. <laughs> yeah, and so I thought that was really interesting. So basically, they say never use more than two arguments, which seems small to me, but maybe I, uh, you know, I'm terrible.
2: Nah, man. You know what? I totally agree with this one. I remember back in the days, and I'll go back to JavaScript, like, you would see things where people would just keep amending a function, right? And Uh all of a sudden, there's 12 arguments in it. And I was like, I can't deal with this. And then I don't remember if it was jQuery or what came out, where you started seeing people pass around configuration objects. And I was like, Totally, that's how it should be done, and it's the same thing in OO, right? You have classes that you pass in, or, or whatever. Like I, I can't stand passing in more. And more yeah, into but I arguments.
0: do hate it though. Where like I feel like it's easy to get into a DTO clutter, oh, right? Yeah, like it you, know, you have you have a bunch yeah. of these little DTO objects, or you know, POJOs or POCos, whatever you choose to call them, uh, that just clutter up your code. Just because you needed to be able to pass something around, yeah, yeah, I
1: hate creating one class just to pass something to or from a function i mean that this is where like um,
0: maybe if I take the opposite stand here and get into bizarro world, and tonight, I'm going to like on JavaScript and say like this is you know the beauty of it is you could just have these uh free flowing types objects that yeah. you don't have to uh have these definitions hanging
1: around. Yeah, but okay. how many times have you had to look at a function just to see what the options are for passing in? And you go down to like 11, line seventeen of the function and realize, oh, okay, I could have passed this argument too. Yeah. Okay. That's so now we're back
0: to normal, Michael, and I'm back to <laughs> hating on JavaScript.
1: Forget yeah. it. But hold on. You when know you, what? Uh,
0: when, when
2: you uh, said, uh, Joe, when you said you jump down and you look at something and it says, "Oh, well, I could have passed this too," are you talking about within the object itself, or are you yeah, talking, I'm talking about? about
1: Okay. Uh, Functions that take, like, a config object or something are some of those optional arguments. And so the config object in particular, like, sometimes it'll accept all sorts of stuff, and you scroll down, and and you have to look and see, like, you know, what all is being used there if there's not good documentation for it, and there rarely is.
0: Yeah. But I think we're, maybe, uh, if I remember right, where they were going, though, is that it might be that uh, if you're taking that many functions or param arguments in that maybe you're doing too much. Well they mm-hmm.
2: also say testing becomes extremely difficult because the permutations of those arguments, you know, mm-hmm. every time you add one, that's one more factorial towards the the number of of, you know, testing scenarios you've got to deal with. And that's a that is an awesome point, right? I mean it really is. The more arguments you add, the more difficult it is to isolate things to that one particular method.
1: Yeah, but to play devil's advocate, I like to create functions and classes that take in the minimal required information. Uh, So I don't like to take a person object if all I need is a name, something like that, you know, because I, you know, want to express to my callers, you know, this is what I need. This is what I'm acting on and I can operate on more than a person object. I, you know, I operate on just, just the things that I need. And so if you don't take this stuff in via functions, then you have to define them as properties or or some other way of getting that information. And so um, when you do it as a property, then you're kind of hiding it and it's harder for people to see what exactly needs to be passed in order to get your function to work. But I still, I I don't want to have six arguments, but it just seems a little too few for me. Well, in your example, though, too, a side effect of doing the
0: way you described it is you're also increasing the potential for reusability. Because you're not tying it to a specific type. Uh, You know, I think you said name, right, in your example? Then, you know, you're opening up the possibilities for other callers to use their own types, but still be able to call it.
1: Yeah. And uh, sometimes I'll even do a interface, you know, call it like a, I name Haver, and I'll go slap it on the person object or anyone else that has a name or, you know, whatever properties I need. And so then it's a, a clear signal. Like these are the guys that I need and I won't use an interface that has more properties that I'm not using because then I'm, you know, I don't want my callers to think, okay, well, I'm not actually passing anything except for name. What should I set all these other properties to? It's just confusing. But I prone. name haver? We got to work on yeah. naming there, buddy. It, you wouldn't want to do a, I name haveable
0: or I nameable hey,
1: or so I namey?
2: That, that reminds me, though. Somebody <laughs> in Slack recently, I think in our Dev Talk channel, said something like you should never name a method with ER on the end, right? Like manager or... Oh, no, that was... Or was that in here? That was
0: part of this... We were talking about this last time about... But they were talking about, um, like, properties. I think it was, like, you shouldn't have controller, manager, helper. Yeah. Uh, Those were the names to stay away from. And I brought it up last time that I thought that that wasn't fair because as it relates to MVC, everybody knows what a controller is. So if your variable name had the word controller in it, then it's immediately obvious to everybody what it is. And actually... We got a comment about that in the uh in the episode uh 47 comments here and I'm trying to remember who, find who it was so I can give proper credit but uh I may not do it I might not be able to find it in time but um you know someone wrote in saying something along the lines of well you know I think that that's uh that's probably not what they meant here it is it was Brian and he said that uh the proposal that he thinks that the proposal against using controller as a class name will be in the context of controller versus manager and not in controller in the context of MVC. And in the case of MVC, controller seems like the standard programming nomenclature like factory or visitor or uh yeah. comparer. Yeah. Right? So, you know, and I agree with that. I, I'm I at least I hope that's where the author's uh you know head is at.
2: Yeah, I agree. The now Going back to your name though, Joe, you need to make it says so like something like I has name, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I has
0: name. and then you can put some sort of meme on it with you a cat. You know what? Right? You know what, Alan? <laughs> you just started something, and I'm gonna have to go back and name all of my interfaces I has. I has name, it, and it's gonna be H A Z because it's gotta be like
2: right. a, a cat meme right. or something. Yeah. Oh. With
0: some little ASCII art above each,
2: <laughs> <Exactly>. each declaration. <laughs> Hey, and and so going back to what you said a second ago, though, Joe, is like you, you don't like hiding things in properties. Like this author was kind of more for that, right? Like they were talking about nilatic mm-hmm. methods that take no arguments, basically meaning that the object already has state and you're just acting upon that state,
1: right? Yeah. I think it's more pure OO. And I, these days I kind of lean a little bit more functional. So I do more y type stuff. I take more arguments and um, yes. I try to modify state as, as little as possible. So I think it's just kind of a, a my personal evolution. And hopefully it's not a devolution. Well, the, the argument that they were kind of going with though,
0: and just to, to build upon what Alan was saying, is that these arguments that what they were arguing for here in this section was that instead of passing the arguments in, that those should already be properties of your class that you're acting on and the more uh there's more cohesion if your classes if your methods are acting on more of those variables right um but i'm with you though like uh joe where if i can make something act more functional then those are a heck of a lot easier to test So write unit test for.
2: I like that, but I still like the idea of passing it in in one object as opposed to six arguments or seven or eight or nine or ten or whatever. So you can pass in the state of something even though if we're talking about functional, the only real difference is it can't modify it, right? Like, it can't mutate what you passed in, but it can return you a new version of whatever it's looking for. So I still like the idea of smaller or fewer arguments.
0: Well, yeah. So, like, the concept too, though, that if you need that many... Uh, arguments, maybe you're doing too much.
2: Possibly. Like, really, what's
0: an example of where you might need something? I mean, like in the last episode, we had talked about um, my inability to tell you the ingredients of a of a particular <laughs> <Supreme> pizza, pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so which you found difficult to believe. Um, you know, I mean, that was an example where you know, okay, you could have this pizza constructor, and you know, if. You're not careful about how you think about the structure of your code. Sure, you could have uh, one that takes no variables, one that takes one variable, all the way up to one that takes 15 variables of of different uh, things that you want to try to make. Instead of uh, you know what the book recommends doing would be to use the um, uh, static the the factory method pattern where you have a um, create supreme pizza method that doesn't need you to pass in the ingredients it already knows and it just returns back the object type that's about the only example that i could think of where i might want a really long list of variables that isn't um like a params uh you know right, a type list. you know a, a list of things so right. like in the case of uh like like a what you might pass into, like, a string format method right. or a string buffer or something like that, you know, where you know, it could be some infinite list of things. Like, that's not being counted here uh, in this particular section of the no, book. But one
2: argument. Basically. Well, they're counting
0: it as one, yes. Yeah. They're not counting it as the infinite list. They're counting it only as the one.
2: Yep. So then the other one that they mentioned that they brought up in the book was called monadic, which is it takes in a single argument, and that's usually a decision argument, like, you know... Do this or don't do this, you know, like if you had something like make visible, you'd pass in true or false, right, so it was kind of like a decision thing, so
0: well, they I wouldn't said, word it that way though, right, because there was a section in the book where um they referred to that I think that was the flag section where uh they were saying like this felt wrong because then, depending on what was passed in, the method does one of two things, yeah. so if you have a like a boolean was a particular example mm-hmm. um. You know, if you're passing in true, then the method is gonna act one way, versus if you pass in false, it's gonna do something completely different. So that's I, why I was I'm saying wrong. like don't call it the decision.
2: Yeah, it's actually wrong. So when you take in a single argument, you're asking about that argument, transforming and returning. So you're actually acting on it. It's not it's not a decision point. So I take that back. You are correct. The flag stuff is further on and they don't like that. Yeah. The, the monadic was when you were actually trying to either modify or change something about it. Um
0: Oh, that reminds me. There was actually like a. Oh, it was here. It is the command query. Yep. Uh, section that pattern. Yeah. Command query separation.
2: Um. So let's finish up on these these function arguments. The other ones were the monadic use. They typically use events.
0: We'll come back to command query separation.
2: Then. Yes, we'll be going down to it. And then the other one was they were basically saying don't use output variables. Which I can agree with, but it is funny. Like, if you look at a lot of the .NET stuff, like, you've got parse, you know, or, I mean, pretty much anything that has a parse has an out variable on it, right? And that's... Those are kind of nasty to to test out properly. And, and it's not obvious, right? Like, you got to put out in your call, and so right.
0: it, it's just... It's not a clean read. It's a way of cheating the system to have two returns. Yes. So, the... If the counter to that would be to have some object that you return that has the uh multiple things right the multiple values instead of um having them in, out uh, having them each independently yep uh yeah, I don't know if I feel as strongly about that, but I definitely... I guess I do, though, because I really don't like having to use the out keyword, and every time I do, I feel a little dirty, yep. especially, like, you mentioned, like, the try-parse examples, which, you know, specific to .NET's syntax here. You know, um, so for those not familiar, if I want to uh, parse some string as, a, as an integer, there's an parse method. The first variable that you pass in would be the string, and the second uh variable would be an integer out um, uh, call and the try parse method itself returns back a boolean as to whether or not it was successful or not so you could say if int um string you know or my string comma out uh, my int right and then you know carry on about your day then you know that the triparse either failed or not uh, versus, if you didn't do that, and you only had the triparse return back, you know, a number, uh, you know, for re- to represent that integer, then how do you know if it didn't, right? Like, how do you know? How do you know when? Like, because this is an example where zero could be a valid, uh, re- you know, value for that integer, so you can't use zero as your uh return, false, right? Right
2: yeah and like you said, instead of doing the out in the method call, you could have just had that method return an object that had successful true or false
0: try parse result alt,
2: right something like that so you know yeah. there's there's a way around those things,
0: yeah, but I mean, imagine like what our code would look like if we did have that though like let's let's talk about the try parse example like if you had a try parse, so you want to say if int dot try parse now you have to have some you know some value so in, if if int dot try parse and then open close parentheses and we'll ignore what's in there dot uh successful yeah dot successful right now it's a little the, weird but it, it that's a little better. weird too it still
2: reads a little bit better though right because otherwise yeah because otherwise you're having to set a variable to it right and then you're saying hey what But wasn't you'd have successful. to
0: set that variable because you've already lost the value now
2: Oh, that's a good point. So
0: so you couldn't because you'd be
2: reevaluating
0: right. So you'd next have to say you like, it. you know, var result equals int dot try parse, if result. Dot successful, then my int mm. equal result, result dot value or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean at
2: least it's consistent. And we've also said on here before, consistency a lot of times is just as good, if not better, than some sort of clean code.
0: Hey, before we get into uh the the next section here uh with flag arguments, you want to do uh how about how about we get into a little call to action here?
2: Yeah, so uh I ain't too proud to beg. <laughs> you guys have been killer. I mean, we got a lot of great reviews this last go around and we read them all. I mean, for those that go and just click the ratings, awesome. We appreciate it. You know, that helps too. But for those of you that actually take the time to sit down and write something to let us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, you know, all that, and, and just the thank yous and, and, you know, we've helped or whatever, that is a huge payment to us. I know that that sounds kind of ridiculous, but, I mean, in all honesty, that is probably one of the biggest things you guys can do for us besides come and join us in Slack for fun. But, um, yeah, I mean, seriously, if you guys have the chance, if you remember when you get out of your car you get off your lawnmower, Please do take take you know five minutes, go up there, head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. Click on either iTunes or Stitcher, and you know, take the time to pin something into us because it, it really does make our day and it it truly helps us out in in more ways than you can imagine. So thank you and, and please do if you get
0: a chance. All right. So with that, I want to get into my favorite section of the show. This the survey says. <laughs> yeah we're gonna we're gonna family feud this guy all right, so uh Joe, you weren't uh there, but you get to participate anyways so the question asked in the last episode is, do you regularly attend meetups or conferences? You had three choices uh yes, I need to get out of my cave every now and then, which really you know I think that was supposed to be command center supposed to be, you know, I got to get out of my command center because it's not just a cave. It's a command center. See all my monitors? It's a command center. And then there's the other option, which is, uh, no, ain't nobody got time for that, right? Or uh, the third option is, oh, I think this is the one where I sang last time and you changed it, right? This is this is. <laughs> I left it in there. Did
2: you? No. I, I left it in the show, but I didn't. I didn't. Oh, in show, the show, yes. yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So the third option is no. I live light years away from any meetups or conferences because I live in the jungle, baby. <laughs> hey man, you you sang about broken death.
1: I did. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> I even sang. We all sang tonight. <laughs> we How about did. that?
2: Uh.
0: So now that we have serenaded you with song, um those are your three choices now. Alan. Well no, I tell you what, Joe, since you're back with us, I'll let you go first. You get first pick. Yes, I need to leave my command center. No, uh no one's got time
1: for that. Or three, no, I live too far away. There's no uh I R S C P and then don't go option. <laughs>
0: I feel like that applies to both of the news.
1: (laughs) Can I give you like a 1.2 or Uh, A.B? I I think uh, number one with uh, 60% of people listening to this podcast do go to uh, get out of their caves. All
2: right. You were crazy optimistic, my man. So,
1: so yes. Wow. Listen to
0: Mr. (laughs) Pessimistic here. The glass is only half full with this guy. I feel like
2: people at the end of the day are tired of Cody and they're like, ain't nobody got time for that. So I'm going to say that was the majority at
0: 40%. I feel like he cheated.
2: Did I Did I get it right? I have not looked at anything, I you promise. liar. I have not looked. How close was I? All
0: right. So here's... here's okay. So <laughs> by Price is Right rules, I'm going to go ahead and say that he cheated, Josie. So you won. <laughs> All right. But the but unfortunately by price's right rules you lost uh, too i went over so so no cuz i say you cheated oh he- so <laughs> the, the the winner was no ain't nobody got time for that and it had 40% of the vote are you serious now you see why i know that he cheated i got skills I'm just nobody saying. pulls that off that, that that doesn't happen that's amazing all right so uh Well, I mean, we'll let the cheater keep playing, <laughs> but so the survey for this episode is uh, define your perfect, your preferred work environment. Do you prefer to work in a cubicle or an open floor plan where... You know, There's no dividers between you and your coworkers, and you can hear all of their conversations, and they can hear all of yours. You might say that I've already shown a little slight preference to the cubicle over the open floor plan, (laughs) but you'd be wrong. Because also you have work from home. Yay! Get to work in your pajamas. Or there's the private office uh, where I guess that would be in an office building. So let's define – let's make that clear. That's in an office building, but – you know, you have your own private office. You can close the door if you need some quiet because everyone out there out there in that open floor plan is just way too loud. Or you don't even like that. You want to work remote but from a place of your choosing, like a coffee shop. So that's that's going to okay. be our survey for the next episode. And that came from Slack. That,
2: that was a conversation we had on Slack today, which you can join in on the fun. By going to www.codingblocks.net slash slack and you can put in your email
0: there and join the party. Yep, and hear all the crazy things that we say. Starting with, uh, oh, we've already passed. We've already talked about the flags, so let's get into verbs and keywords. Do we, did we hit all the? Where did we go? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, pretty much.
1: So. Uh, well, we're up on my favorite one. Can I introduce this one? Please do. Oh. Your function should not have side effects. If it says it does one thing, it should only do that one thing. And I even take that to mean, um, and especially mean, actually, you should not modify the arguments that are passed in. So if you have a git, it should not also do some setting. I don't, you know, Smart properties are nice for some things, but I try to minimize them for the same reason. Um, but to me, the biggies are, are just not modifying unexpected things. Especially the arguments that are passed in, unless it's very clear via the function name that it is destructive. I hate the Java Slice, JavaScript's slice and splice sound so similar, and one ruins your array and the other doesn't. Mm.
2: <laughs> That's a great point.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's good. Substring back to the point that- and substr are the same way. One of them ruins and the other doesn't, and I never remember which one.
0: This this goes back to the point that you made earlier, though,
1: about uh, you know,
0: don't don't set something if you are just trying to get something. Right, yep. right.
2: And we've probably all done it at some point, right? You're like, oh man, this thing wasn't nope, initialized. Never. You've ne- no, You've no, come on, You've
0: seen my code,
2: man. I did it yesterday. No, I probably <laughs> didn't. I wasn't coding yesterday, so I, I could <laughs> I, I could say that. <laughs> you know, I, I totally did not do that yesterday. It was last week, sometime.
1: Oh, you know oh what? No. The, um, I'm going to check your pull request now. <laughs> Ruby, um, and actually, we should have mentioned um, Golang, and I think there's a few other languages that are really good about um, passing back more than one argument that kind of avoids the, uh, or more, more than one return that avoids oh, yeah, the uh, problem with, um, with uh, the out. But um, just like that, uh, Ruby has a great convention for functions that are destructive. And the convention is to put a, a bang, an exclamation point at the end. So if you do like string dot, um, I don't know, Slice bang, that means that your original argument will be modified. No bang, then it returns a copy of it that has been modified. man, I forgot about that hey, if you it, this this reminds me of a previous tip. go to
2: codeschool.com dot com no wait what what was the name code academy code academy, you can take a whole class on it and it teaches you things like that At any rate, go ahead that that's that's amazing teach i forgot about you things that. like ruby like the well you could take the ruby class and it'll teach you like that bang does the destructive uh, versus uh, the not like you learn a lot of cool things about that and that is a great
0: but you were saying that was by convention not by convention yes you know, uh by com-
1: compiler or whatever yep uh, yep yeah. yeah, so no guarantee. But yeah, if I pass you an object, don't don't muck around with my object, although I do that sort of thing in private methods all the time because a lot of times I write like little helper methods because I'm lazy and don't want to copy-paste stuff. And so I'll do gross things like pick in a list and then add items to it based on a condition or something. But with privates, I feel like you can get away with that sort of thing um, a little bit. But I just have to be really careful. And a lot of times I'll put comments to say, like, warning, this appends to the list or this will clear the list out before it, it uh, refills it or something like that. I didn't understand what you meant about the smart properties, though. Or I didn't know where you were going with that. It's a lot of times you'll have a a getter or a setter that just does other stuff. Like you'll say, um, you know, uh, class name dot name. you'll, You'll be getting it. And it will go out, fetch the record from the database, and then return the name. And it's not apparent to you that you are querying. And so you may be doing this object dot name in several places. And it turns out in the background you've run eight queries. Whereas if you knew that it was doing that, you would have you know cached it off to a variable and only used it once. If it was so called just git like that, name uh, from database, key. right? Yeah, and so smart properties in particular are easy to hide stuff like that. I've seen stuff like that where you know every time you call the git, it like wipes out the old collection, you know, repopulates it, whatever, just does some work. And I, I probably wrote that code (laughs) uh, which is nasty because I know I've done stuff like that before but I just don't like stuff that does that and so I try to avoid smart properties even though I understand that the whole benefit of doing properties versus just you know variables is that you can make them smart later without changing any code but don't make it smart.
0: Yeah I mean I'm trying to think I I know I've done examples where like uh, I'll have some property And you'll do a get on it, and then the get will check to see, like, whatever the backing uh, field is for that. You know, hey, is this thing, has this thing been initialized? If not, let's set a lock uh, and then initialize it and release the lock, and then I'll return it back. But, I mean, I guess technically you could say, like, well, that might be doing more than it should
1: be. Is that where you're going with it? Well, I actually just came up a, with a, a joke right now on the fly that I think exemplifies this pretty well.
0: Oh, this should go over well.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when is a property not equal to a property? Uh, datetime.now. Okay. Oh, interesting. If you did, if datetime.now equals datetime.now.
2: It won't equal. Or well, actually it probably would. They're both properties. But they probably I would. Know. I don't know. That's a good question because it could be one tick off, right?
1: Yeah. Don't write. Don't ever write that code.
2: <laughs> because dot now is actually acting like a method, right? It's not. Right. It's acting like a method, even though it's a property. So I get what right. you're saying. It's, it's yeah. a
0: method in disguise. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Man, so hey, that to actually make me bugs feel bad me bad about it. That actually, actually bugs me then. too. By
2: the way, anytime I'm using the datetime dot now, that frustrates me because I think it needs parentheses. I put it on yep. there, and then I get an error, and I'm like, okay. Okay, I'll take them off. Um, the next thing that I actually like, and, and this bugs me to no end, so as passionate as you were about it only doing one thing, I do not like it when I have to go look at a method signature to figure out what that thing needs or is doing, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it says right here, avoid making methods that require required to inspect the declaration. Your method shouldn't be named something that, or it should be named something that identifies its true intention. I totally agree with that, man. I can't stand it when I've got to go read a method to figure out what in the world is actually happening in that thing, right? It, it drives me absolutely crazy. And that goes back to the whole three-minute or one-minute thing that, that we said earlier, right? Oh, right. You should be able to know just by reading it exactly what you're getting. That still getting. might be
0: my favorite takeaway from this book, though, is the three minute, the three-minute method. <laughs> I, I feel like it's seven-minute abs. Yeah, I, I feel like that's where we're going. No, man, it's a two-minute method because it's better. <laughs> One-minute method. <laughs> that's just stupid.
2: Nobody would do that. For anybody who gets that reference, that's golden. <laughs>
0: Brett Favre. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would get it. All right, so let's go back to the uh, command query separation concept here. Um. So, f- functions should either do something or answer something, but not do both. Woo hoo! So, so that's really the idea here. Yeah that that is that's just
2: what Joe said. If you have something that says get, it shouldn't be doing anything; it should be returning a variable, right? If you have something that says set, it really shouldn't be doing well. Hmm, what if you go to set something and it requires other information on an object for it?
0: Yeah, you still... Eh. This is where it's not, doing more than
2: one thing. You're not mutating state, though. That's really so the if key, you right?
0: So if you, if you can't separate those two, then your method is doing too much. Yeah, I think you might be right. Okay. I didn't write the book. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> Prefer exceptions
2: as opposed to error codes. I one hundred thousand percent agree with this. I hate, I hate error codes. codes you too, dude, yep. SqL server I man, oh, stored procedures are the worst, right? If you return a zero, then that means everything's good. If you return a ten, oh well, you got to go look at the proc to figure out what the author meant by ten, and then twenty and thirty and a hundred, man, I cannot stand error codes at all. I hate them mm-hmm
1: yeah and yeah somewhere you have to define them, and it just gets nasty, and then you know you, what inevitably happens is like you don't want to create another error code set so you end up like using one from somewhere else and somebody adds to it, and now yours can potentially return something that it would never return and it just gets ugly so yeah. I
0: won't say i am not as passionate as passionate about it uh as as you you definitely have a lot of hate in your heart i for do this. I, d-
2: I don't like error codes. you know
0: but i I mean I see it as dated is the way I view it like it was def- there was a time where this was a necessary thing right so if you were chaining together a bunch of commands like command line uh you know uh not parameters but you know command line commands i guess if we could have another command in there um arguments no that's why i said not um no you you're on a command line and you're going to chain one command into the next right then you know, having a non zero error code, you know, or value come back, right? I mean, there was a time for that. That's, you know, where it made sense, right? H you.
1: result. But what'd you say? H, H results. H, H results. Let's result. oh, say so you yes, know you're okay. dealing with C code.
0: Yeah, totally. Going back to like Win32 programming. Okay. I'm but I'm not you. even talking about H results, though, by the way. You're I, talking you know, about a
2: holdover. But why does SQL Server still use return codes for a proc, right? Like, come on, man! Seriously, come on! Give me, give me something real. Like, I, I, oh. I feel like SQL this is
0: conversation is fair. Some though syntax updates because SQL in general—I mean, not just SQL Server, but just SQL in general—is yeah. just really outdated. It is, it, you know, it is. It's, and make it's over amazing time. what all we still do with it.
2: I mean, it's it, amazing we still can. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay, so But yeah. then
0: you know you're, you're you're amazed with that, and then look at all the wonderful things you can do with Pearl. <laughs>
1: I'd rather not. Oh, uh, sorry, hurts my
0: eyes. So so, what about this this uh, statement, which was to
1: extract your try catch blocks? Love it. I'll, you know, I'll tell you why. I love throwing exceptions. I love very <laughs> specific exceptions. Like I'll have validate methods and. They'll take a look at some things and they'll throw some very specific uh, argument that gets logged to uh, you know disk somewhere or something gets returned to the UI it's fantastic I hate catching I want only I want as few catches as I can get away with I want that to be the, the top most level thing that's who decides what to do when something goes wrong I don't want a bunch of people catching and trying to make decisions along the way you know especially if you are a third party you're dealing with third parties don't cover it up Toss it up, and I will deal with it at the appropriate level of abstraction for my specific purpose.
2: I agree with that. I like that a lot. And and I do like what they said very next was your try, catch, your try should be the very beginning of the method, and your catch or finally or whatever should be the very end.
0: Well, yeah, it was specifically what I liked was that error handling is one thing. Yes. Right? So if your method does one thing... And you have to do error handling, then that's it. That's the one thing that it gets to do yep. it has you know something else has to be called to do whatever other work that you want done
2: yep so you you have your try and then you have do something right, and then that's going to catch whatever error happens and that gets thrown back out so
0: by you know then that's where you catch like
1: one of Joe's fifteen exceptions <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, they're all just regular exceptions though. So, oh. yeah, catch do. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, you know, Java, man, I, I like the idea that I can call a method and see very explicitly like these are the types of exceptions that I'll throw, except that everybody gets tired of writing all that and they all just say throws exception.
2: Yeah, they throw a new exception, right? Just your generic run of the mill exception.
0: Oh, that's actually yep. later called out as a problem in the book that they call that they, they do is. address that later in the book as a
1: refactoring problem. Hmm. Yeah, because it starts out, you're like, oh, well, I throw an IO exception or I throw argument exception. And next thing you know, you're like, "Oh, but I now I call this line thing, and it returns this, and so I need to go add to my function." Or nope, I just throw exception. Well, yeah. well, it was something that a generic the, one.
0: It was something that the Java community is a whole kind of addressed or uh, admitted as like a, a a fault of the language. That sounds harsh to call it a fault of the language because uh, I don't mean it to sound something that, that harshly. It could use improvement. It is. It sucks. But but <laughs> because what it was doing is it was it was. Uh, kind of carrying forward a dependency here. Like, I throw an IO exception. Now you call me. Well, guess what? If you're not catching that, that, you're going to have to include that as part of your declaration. And whoever calls your method, guess what? If they're not going to catch it, they got to include it as part of their declaration. So in the very end, like I said, IO exception. So that was, like, very uh, generic. But what if I had a very specific uh, exception like uh, coding blocks IO exception because Alan didn't like Michael's (laughs) code and Michael rejected that PR, right? That's a very specific. That's a very specific exception that got thrown. And now, but that that piece of code and its declaration, you know, it gets uh, you know passed all the way up. So now callers way up the chain might have to know about it. And now, let's say I go and refactor that thing because I'm like, wow, that was a really long name. I don't even remember what it was. Just just call it coding box exception because you Michael's crazy. Everything. Then then there's a whole bunch of code that you got to go back and change. Yeah. Well, except so, that
1: everyone got lazy somewhere along the line and just started saying exception. Yeah, throw a new exception. So it's right? totally worthless. Which yeah.
0: is to our benefit. Thank you. Which is basically... It made it so much easier. Because I don't even remember the, what the name of that exception was that yeah. I made. Put the string
2: in there and be done with it, right? That's what most people do. So, <laughs> um, it, The next section, I actually love this. Don't duplicate code. I, I've actually had people kind of laugh at me. Like if... Uh, if I have something that's doing something and then there's another thing that's like a, 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 like another instance of that object and they're checking the same thing, I won't do that. I cannot stand it. I will combine those two things in an array and then do a loop over them to, to do that same method, right? So let's say that you have a bunch of logic that's happening on object one and then you've got that same object acting on object two because they're instances of the same class. I'll put those in an array, do a loop over them, and have it you know just iterate over the items and do the same logic on both of them. Even though I know it's really not that much code, I don't like the idea that... Or you can mm, just
0: extract that logic out as a method.
2: You could do that. If it, if it was something that you could append to the class, that might work out better.
0: But So this is better known as the dry principle. Yes. Which we talked about... Uh, no, have we talked about this? Yeah, no, we I'm have. Sure, Certainly, yeah, we yeah, talked about Yeah, we did it this. in solid. It was one of the things in solid. Well, the D in solid, though, I thought was the dependency. Don't repeat
2: yourself, right? Was uh, it not? Dependency
0: uh, it's not. injection principle. Huh.
2: Was it yep. not?
1: In- inversion. We've, We've talked so dependency about Dependency inversion principle.
2: We've talked about it. I don't know when, though. Anyways, go ahead. But,
1: yeah. So,
0: better known as DRY, which is do not repeat yourself. Yep. and And they say
2: duplication leads to multiple places to change. In more places where bugs can occur. We've all had this problem where we, we know that this code exists in five different places, right? And if you don't know, the next person that comes behind you doesn't know that when they update this one that they need to update the other four, oh, right. then you've, you've got a problem, right? right. And that's, that happens, and that happens so much. So if you can, break all those out into a common piece of functionality that everything can use, right?
0: Right. Yeah, this is better known as DRY. Do not repeat yourself again. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, do it. I was waiting <laughs> on one of you to catch it because I said it like a few times. <laughs> I like
1: it. Drya. Uh,
2: what else do we have?
1: Uh, don't necessarily stick to the single entry, single exit rule. Uh, this is a uh, structured programming referred to Donald Knuth used to kind of say that. It would basically like you know do ifs or do whatever, and, and the idea was always to have like return. You know, be the last thing and only uh, one return. Yeah, and I don't do that. I like to buck out early. So when that you're when you're reading the method, as soon as you stop caring about what happens next, like return out of there. Yeah,
0: I mean, hmm. so I try to only I try to have the one return as often as I can, and but I'm also trying to keep those methods small so I can do that. But there are times where I will return early, but the way I'll try to do that is, like, I where I feel like I still kind of structure that okay is, like, maybe if I'm returning back, like, some kind of res- result of, you know, let, let's say it was a, re- a Boolean result, and, you know, I might even name that variable as result, and so I'll initialize it as, you know, uh, var result equals false, and then if there's some condition that I need to check out early, then it's just, you know, return result right there and there, Right. Whereas at the very bottom, then I'll have another return result. But I really prefer to not do that, though, because I really do like the idea of if you have the one, then I think it reads cleaner. Because then from a testing perspective, there's one control path that's going to get you to that end state. right? But
1: it's going to branch. There's going to be a level of nesting there. Depends on how big your method is. And well, there's going. going to have to be at least one. If you, if you have that return early, then there's some sort of branch happening. So you've got to have at least one level of nesting in addition to your function. Yeah. In the case that it needs that, yes. Right, yeah, sure. If it doesn't need it, then there's only going to be one return anyway.
2: Yeah. I would say, generally speaking, I try and stick to one, but I will return early. If, if if you know, some condition's not met and you know that absolutely you can't carry on, then I'll definitely return out, just like what you were saying,
0: right? Uh, I mean, there's also times, too, where um, – so as a, as a stylistic principle, right, there are times where you could take the approach of I could go ahead and bail out early with a return statement, and now I have two possible return statements. Or I could only have the one return statement, and maybe uh, based off of that conditional result, if you were to flip that that state, so instead of returning early because the condition – didn't meet your satisfaction if instead you flipped it to where if it does meet your satisfaction then you do your work right then it'll skip that you could you could have you could have the one return statement and again if we're talking about small blocks of code here you know like if that if that if if statement is only like five lines of code then you're not going to mind an if statement that's in you know on uh, a level of indention that's you know only for five lines of code. I think right? that's a fair point. That's not yeah. going to be so bad. Yeah. So there have been times where I've done that. And and here's the thing too uh, and the reason why I that particular type of example comes to mind is we've talked about ReSharper in the past. Right. And there have been times where um, ReSharper is its its default rules are pretty good about hey you could flip this state And reduce your indention levels, right? But there will be times where I'm, yeah, I agree with you. I could could certainly do that. But I kind of like the way it reads better right now. And since it's only a few lines, I, I don't feel like it's too bad.
2: I'll take readability over shortness of code any day.
0: Well, I mean, I'm still talking about short
2: code. But sometimes their whole inversion thing is to save you a line or two lines, right? If I remember right. It's been a while since I've used Reef Sharper, but... Oh, that's a Uh Yeah. I mean, I've still been debating buying it, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how do you how do you make these functions this beautiful? How's that happen?
1: <laughs> I have a good story. Uh, maybe it's not that good, but uh, I was <laughs> chatting with someone about a Code Wars problem. And I, I sent to my function, I was like, man, I had a really tough time with this. And like, oh, man, uh, I'm ashamed uh, because your function looks so nice. So, you know, something like that. I was like, man, you should have seen it 10 minutes ago. <laughs> or not even 10 minutes, like two hours ago. Like, I, that's how long I've been done. And I've been whittling this thing down. Because right. it was a beast of a problem. And I knew that there was also sorts of duplication and nasty stuff. And so it was just a matter of choosing to spend that time with it. Because anyone could have looked at it and known that there was duplication and uh inefficiencies so it's just a matter of uh how much time you want to waste on it all functions start as trees until you whittle <laughs>
0: them down to toothpicks that is yeah, so like true
2: that. <laughs> that is so true yep i mean there was a when we were back talking about fizzbuzz i think in in our algorithms in the interview um episode we had mentioned one of the fizzbuzz uh blog posts where somebody took regular FizzBuzz and just OO'd it to the nth degree. <laughs> and, I mean, the thing is, the the key takeaway is you never start out in the perfect end state, right? You start out in the state where you get something done, and then you start extracting those out and extracting them out until you get to a point to where you are into a more, whether it's OO or more readable or functional type state, It's just like you said, you whittle it. You cannot start thinking about the absolute perfect way to go because you'll just think yourself in circles.
1: Agreed. Yeah.
0: All right. Well... (laughs) <laughs> so hey, so we ready to do
1: chapter what, what four? <laughs> chapter four. I think know, chapter four is a lot a lot shorter than uh chapter three as far as uh commentary. Yeah,
0: we're already almost two hours into this though. I, yeah, I'm calling it. Yeah, I think I think we're good. So for and the resources we like. Hey, guess what? We're going to have a link to clean code because we like it, despite some of the things you might have heard us say. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I actually, this is probably the book I agree with the most. I, I'm i a big complainer. I'm an Eeyore, not a digger. I usually complain about everything. But Clean Co, just about every everything we talked about, I totally agree with.
2: Man, this guy, he, he, he lies. This guy doesn't complain about anything.
1: The JavaScript. <laughs> Let's talk about JavaScript or SQL. Okay. Or, uh, he, he does complain
2: know. about SQL. He jokes about, about JavaScript hate, but he really does hate SQL.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well... Uh, That's not without good reason. Why um, can't
1: I sort dynamically? <laughs> so let's get into
0: let let's get into Alan's favorite section of the show. Yes, sir. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, come on. All right. So uh, for my tip of the week here, I think we may have talked about conditional breakpoints once before, which are awesome. Uh, so if you're not familiar with this is. Uh, a tip specific to Visual Studio and there, you know, other IDs may have similar features. But, uh, you know, if you were to right-click on a piece of code, you know, set a breakpoint uh, just by clicking in the left area um, or also I think F9 will set the breakpoint too. Is that right? I think. Or is it all f Yeah, F9? F9. That's great. Uh, F9. Oh, it's disable it is control F9. Yeah, sorry. So you could, you could go onto a line of code and either click on it on the far left um, gutter, I guess you could call it, or uh, F9, that line of code, and set a breakpoint. But you could also set a conditional on it. So you could say, like, hey, only stop at this condition if something has happened, right? So you could do that by right-clicking on the breakpoint and going to conditions or do alt plus F9 and then the letter C to get to the conditions. But here's a really awesome scenario, though, that I'm going to ask... You two guys, have you ever found yourself where you will write code that might log some message um, based off of some scenario, you know, that that just, just so you can like debug a problem better? Totally. Right? Or maybe you've, you're debugging something and you're like, oh man, I already wrote some code up here that would log this message based off of this scenario so that I could see what was happening there. I wish I'd done something similar over here. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah. Okay. Well, you will do that no more, my friend, because you have actions with your breakpoints as well. So what you can do, go to your breakpoint again. You can set a conditional for it. You don't have to but you can right click on it and unfortunately there is no uh, keyboard shortcut for this so you have to right click on your breakpoint uh, and click on actions and then you can set uh, you know what you want to have happen so if you want it to if you want some code to be logged out to the console right so you could do something like a system.trace and or system.diagnostics.writeline whatever you know whatever you want to do wherever you want to write it you could uh, you know put that code in there to write to output some message right so maybe you want to see the value of something maybe you want to see the thread name that you're you know the thread id that you're in or maybe you want to see the call stack so you have some method and you're like hey who just called this guy right where did this come from so there's there's some there's a handful of pre uh defined variables, so dollar address dollar caller dollar call stack dollar function dollar pid for process id dollar pname dollar tid for thread id or tname so you could set uh you know instead of let's say for example um, let's think of an, an apache log for net kind of scenario or log for j if you're familiar with those standard kind of Logging formats, right? But so you wrote some code as you said that you have to log a message based off of some scenario, but now you're actually in the debugger and you don't want to stop the session because maybe it took you a while to get to the point that you're trying to debug, right? So you could right click on your breakpoint, select an action, go to the little dialog, which is log a message to the output window, and then write your similar. Uh, log for net type of style in there, so that you could see what's happening. That's sweet, and it's awesome. And then not only that, but you could also label your breakpoints so that you can actually, instead of just seeing breakpoint one, breakpoint two, you could see something more meaningful about like, uh, you know, what that breakpoint is meant to be.
2: Hmm. So this is almost like a way for you to be able to
0: inject code exactly
2: at your breakpoint.
0: Exactly. Not worried about checking it in, and yeah. exactly or having to stop it's and debug restart your code. debugging. It's debug code that you can inject at will at runtime that doesn't have to be committed, and you don't have to compile it. Right. That's beautiful. Now, if you write something that it doesn't like, then you will get a a little message uh, about what it couldn't do, and then it'll just skip it. You know, so it it will it won't break the app. But, yeah, it is, it is a beautiful ability to be able to inject your debug code that you don't want to clutter your real production code with all this debug stuff, but yet there are times where you may need to see, like, some internals of what is happening. Who just called this method, and is it on the same thread that I'm expecting it to be on? Or did something else happen? That's
1: yeah, it's lovely. amazing.
0: It's, it's, it's beautiful when you see it in action. Now, here's the one. I will, like, one word of warning, one caution okay, is that um, you could write some beautiful code in that dialogue, but God help you if you accidentally uh, hit F9 again. Or if you click (laughs) on that, you mean to right-click on that red ball, and instead you left-click on it. Because uh, Visual Studio giveth, and Visual Studio taketh away. Save those office snippets. (laughs) Yeah, so... But but yeah it is totally a beautiful thing. I was working in some um multi-threaded we we were talking about uh caching a few episodes ago and I was working in some multi-threaded uh caching code and trying to debug some scenarios and the ability to do this was just such a lifesaver because I didn't have to muddy the code up. Right. And and here's the beautiful thing too cuz if you ever found yourself in a scenario where you you write okay so so when i preface this whole thing and i ask you like hey have you ever found a situation where you like write code to actually log some message based off of a scenario right and then inevitably what happens is over to, over the course of trying to debug this thing you end up putting too much of it in right yeah. and so now now the real meaning is getting lost in the weeds in the noise because you're throwing so much of it out there but because these are just breakpoints you can selectively turn them on and off without losing your code as long as you disable the breakpoint don't
2: turn it off disable it or well, don't no, remove it don't, don't remove, remove it, it. just yeah. turn,
0: just disable the breakpoint so you know you could say like okay i think this this particular breakpoint message that i have here is a little too noisy let me just disable it right now and then move on right and especially if you combine those breakpoints uh, with condition conditional statements, now you can really get powerful because you could say like, hey, only stop at this breakpoint if this condition is met. And then if that condition is met, take this action. And oh, by the way, I forgot to even mention that as part of the action, which you can uh, say one of the other options for that is is to is um, there's a checkbox continue execution, so you don't even have to have the breakpoint stop at the at that It'll spot. Just dump out your output. It'll just write out the message to the to the output window and keep on going. Nice, unless you want it to stop. But you know, I believe the continue execution checkbox is checked by default if I remember correctly. That's sweet. So yeah, it it, it can be a lifesaver, and I'll, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes for an example of that uh, from some MSDN documentation that is written geared towards Visual Studio 2015, but uh, at least in 2013, this was there, and I don't remember about 2012. So your mileage may vary on Visual Studio 2012 and before, but 2013 and later, you're good to go. Pretty cool. So,
2: mine is on Outlaw's favorite topic, which is Git. And I had a situation recently, which I'll briefly explain. Basically, we had a bunch of third-party code checked into Git. And we were upgrading the version of that third-party code. And so, all those files changed, right? Like, it, it, it was just... You so, do, let's say,
0: if for example, if it was a log for net, is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, it was a, uh, some somebody else's... Yes. DLL. Well, I guess it's a It's not a example, DLL. Though, it's the actual source
2: code. If you downloaded the source okay. code from Git and you put it in your Git repo because you might be making changes to it or something, who knows, right? But for some reason, it ends up in your repo, are we doing? Your, your local repo. Hmm. Okay. And uh, so you're upgrading the version of it. So now all these files change because they've made changes to the underlying system, make it more efficient, whatever the case may be. And you made a few changes to some of your files, and you go to do a git status, and you just see a ton of red pop up because they've either changed or renamed or whatever the case may be, right? And, and you know you made some changes to the files, and you did a git add, and you added them to the cache. Now you can't figure out for the life of you what files are in your cache that you're trying to commit. There, you would think that there'd be a way to do this using git status because git status will usually show you what you've got cached for staging and what is modified on the disk. There is no way to do that with git status to leave out the um non uh what what do they call those things Uh, untracked files. What you can do though is this little trick where you can use git diff so you can use git diff dash dash name dash only. Dash dash cached, and that will return you a list of the files that you have in your in your cached or your staged area, and just the file names. So if you need to figure out which files you actually touched and you've got staged ready to commit, that will give you a list of those files. It saved my bacon. So uh, hopefully somebody else will find that useful. I, I I spent so much time trying to figure out how to do it with get status. It didn't work. So Git diff dash dash name dash only dash dash cached. Sweet, very
0: nice.
1: And please don't forget, uh, dear listeners, if you know what is coming after Git, please email me because I'm ready to move on. What? You
2: don't what you don't like Git. I'm fine. Like I won't say I'm finally. I, I actually enjoy it. It makes me feel like coding is less painful. There are some situations that that is not true. But for the most part, I find it way less painful than anything I've ever used in the past. I feel like yeah, Joe yeah. is That's the thing about missing... That's the
1: thing about G- it's it sucks less than everything else, but <laughs> you probably got to that point by putting in a good 4 hours a week of messing with it for years. Possibly.
2: Like, possibly.
1: I, I, I feel like uh Joe
0: misses version well, and that's why No, I, not at
2: all. Hey, but hold on, Joe. <laughs> I feel like you need to qualify that because Didn't you get good at C-sharp by being frustrated by it for four hours a week for the past (laughs) several years, too?
0: What about
1: JavaScript, Joe?
2: What part of programming wasn't that way?
1: I Google basic stuff about Git daily. (laughs) Come on. Daily. I think you're exaggerating. No, like... It's just stupid stuff like, uh, how do I, uh, you know, amend the message or something? I just, just things I just don't do often enough, and I'm always messing with Git. And so I just feel like Git is really complicated, and there's a lot of problems. And every place I've ever worked has just spent so many hours just even arguing about the Git workflow. And so I think that there's, there's got to be something else on the horizon, right? Hmm. Please, got, got no. is coming soon. Yeah, got. <laughs> I,
2: I type that all the time. Well,
0: well, if, if <laughs> Git uh were to the were to follow the path of Linux since they were both uh you know started from the same same mind, right? Then I guess we should expect to see different distributions of git coming to yeah. uh a compiler near you. Boom. So, yeah. <laughs> there'll be there'll be uh a, a, a red hat version,
1: a the, Debian version. Sent Git. Sent is it git. too late for me Correct. to catch Hurricane Matthew Take me away, buddy
2: (laughs) Joe's on his way out the door (laughs) Not running away from the storm
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's going to like point break this thing And run to it with a a surfboard in his hand Oh,
2: by the way, so that's another thing Like Joe, Joe, we almost like He tried to force us to record again without him Because last week when we were going to record He invited Hurricane Matthew into his backyard
1: Yeah, what's up with that, man? Nobody does Yeah, knocked my fences down Man unreal they're still down
2: we we're, we're glad that that was all that happened.
1: yep, legitimate excuses though,
2: yes, <laughs> but, yes,
1: uh, uh, so on for my tip, actually, um I changed my tip out um, as we were going along because I remembered an excellent m s dev show uh, episode that I heard recently um with Katrina Owen, and it was all about refactoring, and one of my favorite parts about that talk, uh and I always love talks about refactoring, was um she mentioned some really good reasons for not refactoring some code. What? So I'll just I'll give that teaser. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You have to go listen. Oh my god! But I hadn't even a thought of this before. When they started talking about, it, I was like, "Oh, those those are really good reasons." But they also talk about some different things like balancing refactoring with working and not trying to convince your boss that you need to spend the next six months refactoring something. And just really good, intelligent conversation as always from those uh, people. So uh, go listen.
0: Yes. Do. Interesting. All right. You've sparked my curiosity here. All right. So, uh, you know, this is we've made it to chapter three of Clean Code. (laughs) So we're really going at a fast pace here. I feel like you could have read the book faster. (laughs) Um, You know, just saying. Uh, You know, be sure to leave a comment uh, on www.codingblocks.net slash episode 48 for your chance to win a copy of Clean Code. And as always, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes to share more in case if uh, a friend happened to you know, loan you their device so that you could listen to this or if they pointed you to the site. And be sure to leave us a review. Go to www.codingblocks.net slash review. As Alan mentioned we greatly appreciate that. It always puts a smile on our face and really makes us happy when we read some of those reviews. So uh, I can't say it enough. Totally.
2: I think Joe's asleep. I feel like he should do the next thing. <laughs> so, uh, visit us yes. at Coding Blocks, <laughs> <laughs> And drunk. So, um, <laughs> yeah, visit us at CodingBlocks.net where you'll find all
1: our show notes, our examples, our discussions, and more and yep. yeah that that's it for me and uh send your feedback question and rants to our slack channel codingblocks.slack.com because you'll get much uh more more better responses more better <laughs> but uh you can also email us at uh comments@codingblocks.com if you have any questions or anything uh, net which is dot great. net. Dot net. Oh, .net. Uh, Wow. .net. Wow. Uh, Yeah. You're fired. I am tired. You're fired. And um, be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net, and you'll find all our social links at the top of the page. Wow. I feel like that's his way of saying, hey, I need a sticker. (laughs) Yes, (laughs)
2: Yes. He could read it off the sticker. Good thing we
1: put that .net on the
2: sticker. Man, I'm actually putting a sticker on my computer against all the willpower I have.
0: You know, I feel like you're going to come to the dark side here because they are a beautiful thing. Look at how pretty my laptop looks with all of these stickers on there. Your laptop makes my... Your, your laptop looks like you just bought it. Like, it's amazing, right? It's, no. It's, it's like... It's a 2011. It looks I can't brand stand new. it. I look at your <laughs> laptop and I'm like, when are you going to use that thing yet? <laughs> like, how long has that thing been sitting in a box? <laughs> Man, you That's guys. boring. How many stickers Months you got enough. on yours, Joe?
1: Oh, zero. But I've got a lot of cat hair, dog slobber, and I don't know, taco (laughs) shell crunchies on it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I put this thing to work. Oh, dude, that's amazing. But your guitar, your guitar is held together by stickers. It it is. Like, I don't even know that it would work without them now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't. It's It's covering some holes. That's every awesome.
0: every time you uh, put a sticker on it, you change the tuning of it a little bit.
2: <laughs> yep. Hey,
1: suddenly it got deeper. Uh, like put, put another one on the left end. <laughs> that's awesome.
2: <laughs> All right, guys, that's a wrap.